Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of How's That Day? A Culture Rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenhaft here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture. I'll start this week with the same question I ask him every goddamn week. Tom, how is that day? Yeah. If I could be like Tom Bond here. How's everybody doing? Phil, how good is that song just on its own? It's so good it spawned a film. <laughs> it's uh it's got one of like the best grooves ever. I love the <laughs> percussion in it. I love the kids coming in. I'm doing good, Phil. Thank you for asking. Um obviously we are I'm I'm hyped up about basketball tonight. That's what we're going to be talking about a lot. But uh, let's see. It is Memorial Day weekend. So happy uh, holiday weekend to you, good sir. Oh, yeah. I guess it is. Yeah. I hope you're uh, doing fantastically. I uh, haven't done much other than the the assignments for this week's episode over the last couple of days. What have you been up to? Uh, same thing. I've been watching movies <laughs> as like the lot. I feel like these episodes are going to get repetitive through quarantine because it's like, oh, no, uh, it sucks. I, yeah, it's like, well, I am still writing a screenplay. I am still watching movies, and I am uh, watching stuff for the show and uh, reading and doing that stuff. Like, kind of same thing. Um, it's been a good week. Today is apparently the 40th anniversary of The Shining being released. Um. I also saw that it's the 38th anniversary of Temple of Doom being released, so it's a good movie day in the history. Ooh, books. happy 38! Happy it's thir- a big one. Yeah, happy 38th to Temple of Doom, uh, which features one of Tom's favorite action uh, pieces of all time. Uh, at least, yeah, at least according to my look at Tom when it happened the first time in front of him. Um, the raft coming out of that chopper. Yeah, absolutely. It's the best. You're like it's re- the best. You're like rewind that shit. I need to see that again. Well, it's just, it's a big, big budget Spielberg action extravaganza. They're like, yeah, let's just throw this raft off of the dummy and see what happens. Hey, man, simpler times, simpler times. <laughs> it worked out beautifully. I mean, we did watch it several times in a row. Yeah, and you can't I, tell at all that let it's me, big. Let me ask you this. So, 40th anniversary, I get. That's cool. Happy 40th to The Shining. Seminal horror film. It's a classic movie. We should be celebrating. To me, like, you celebrate, you celebrate one, you celebrate five, ten... 2025 and then i guess every five years after that but i do see stuff like that all the time like 38 years ago today temple of doom like is that something to celebrate i think it's just like 38th yeah i think it's just they do like on this day so and so came out like earlier this week i saw like on this day encino man was released so sometime this week in like 1995 encino man came out or something on this day makes sense to me, but when yeah, when I see like happy twenty seventh anniversary to Alien Three premiered in theaters today, I'm like, all right, it's not really an anniversary. I mean, I guess it's an anniversary, but I don't, I don't know what's my point. I don't have a point here. Well, I have you don't to have to. I mean, our that. lives have been, I think, fairly boring recently. <laughs> yeah, these are the things that I, I, I force myself to think about this now because I'm driving my own self fucking crazy. Sitting at home with three cats, driving my allergies up the wall. I apologize if I sound like a nasally congested mess. I'm not sick, as far as I know. Knock on wood. But uh, my 
nose is clogged, so I apologize for that. But yeah, man, that's all that's all either of either of us are doing. That's all anyone's doing right now, right? We're just staying home. Although I know some states are opening up. Uh I talked to my mother earlier and she's in South Carolina and she said like the restaurants are open, people are going out and eating, having a good time, partying. Yeah, I had a long talk with uh, my older brother who's in Ohio, and he was like, so what's the mask situation like out there? I was like, oh, man, I accidentally went to 7-Eleven one night just to grab something really quick, and I forgot to grab my mask. Um, and I live like a, like literally one building over from a 7-Eleven. And I was like, well, you know, I've seen a few people in there like without them from time to time. I think I can just, if I'm just grabbing something, I'm in there for 30 seconds. Like, I think, I, I think I'll be okay. And I was in there, man, and this guy turned around, and he was like, what's the matter, man? You don't believe in the Corona? <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, I'm sorry, man. It was a mistake. And, but like, I got harassed. Like, don't believe in it. Like it's a Santa Claus or something. Yeah. Or like, Hey man, why aren't you wearing, he was just like, why aren't you wearing a fucking mask, man? Uh, and yeah. I was like, Oh shit. I'm sorry. I, I promise you like 99 times out of a hundred, I'm, I'm wearing one, but today I just forgot it for 30 seconds. And, uh, but he's like, I told that to my brother and he was like, dude, it's the complete opposite here in Ohio here. It's like, if you're wearing a mask, people are like, what's your problem? You're giving into the fucking man. And I, we come from a more conservative area of Ohio, but yeah, there's definitely the, I guess the experience of living there right now is very different from the experience of living in California. I saw this headline yesterday. I believe it was from the Washington post WAPO. Um, and it talked about the mask, quote, culture wars that are going on in the country right now, turning this into a culture war. And apparently there are, there are a few stores. They were signaling out this mall somewhere in Texas. I forget the town. But um, they were actually turning away customers who were wearing masks, apparently. That's ridiculous. That's so stupid. That is so fucking stupid. Like, what if, what if they're like... Yeah, no, it's not even about coronavirus, although I don't mind wearing a mask for that. I actually have cancer and radiation sickness from chemotherapy, so I wear a mask so I don't get sick, you asshole. Like there, there are also other reasons people might wear masks in public, regardless of how stupid it would be to deny someone's surface because they're wearing them, like because they're doing the responsible thing and erring on the side of caution. That's so, fuck, oh, God, that, that mentality of everything and everyone is out to get you and you're sticking it to big government by not obeying basic health laws and just trying to be safe and considerate of other people around you. It's just so insane. It's so dumb. I think one of the more tragic things, and I've actually noticed this for the, you know, however many years, but one of the things that really grates at me is, uh, this notion that people have this fundamental misunderstanding of what freedom is uh, and this idea that, <laughs> uh, you know, they're like, hey, man, this the or it's especially like what they think their rights are. Like they clearly think, you know, um, freedom of speech means like I can say whatever the fuck I want, man, freedom of speech. And I'm like, nah, man, it's not what that means. It means you won't be arrested for like saying you don't like the president. It doesn't mean like you can fucking go scream at somebody or whatever, uh, or abuse somebody, you know, like there's lines to draw and some people have somehow equated this, like I'm free and you're infringing on my rights. If you don't let me into the store, it's like, no man, there's privacy policies like on every door, like no shirts, no shoes, no fucking entrance. Like that's the same thing. And yeah, I'm amazed. It's amazing what 
Americans especially uh, kind of interpret freedom as is just like I can do whatever I want when I want any kind of inconvenience is an infringement on my rights or my freedom and it's like no it's not you selfish fuck and absolutely yeah I couldn't agree more with you man I, I, I would see this all the time when there was this it's probably still going on but you know for a long period of time there was this idea in certain sections of the far right that they were being um, people were being like shadow blocked on Twitter as a as a form of censorship yeah. against uh, far right-leaning political views. And I would hear so many people talk about, like, they're violating their freedom of speech by banning them on YouTube or on Twitter, which, for one thing, that wasn't happening. There was really no evidence of that happening. But beyond that, like, Twitter's a, a private company that can, <laughs> that <Yeah>. can deactivate <laughs> any account for any reason they deem fit. If you don't like it, go make your own social media platform. Yeah, that's you know, this has nothing to do with your freedom of speech being violated, you imbecile. Yeah, that's that's the stuff that's been on my mind. You know, this week, uh, yeah, I've been doing stuff like getting mad at politics. I today was the or not today, but this week was the week that I finally pulled the plug on Facebook. I was like, all right, I've had this account. I had to have it for my last job, especially because of contacting people. But now I'm in this place of like I've unfollowed ninety percent of the people who I'm friends with because I can't stand them, and. Uh, the other 10%, um, I probably follow on a different social media app. And, like, it's only making me have lesser opinions of the people I know, like family members or, like, coworkers or something. You know, you're like, this is only making me hate you more. I would rather disengage from here than listen to your shitty opinions or whatever else you feel so, like sharing. So you deactivated Facebook? Yeah, this week. I, that's, I was just like, I can't. Congratulations. Do, I was just like, I can't do this thing anymore. Like, this is just literally putting me in a bad mood multiple times a day. Like, why am I? Abs yep. That's that's why I stopped and I've never looked back. Unlike uh, other social media applications where, um, you know, sometimes I struggle or like I, I have a real itch to hop back on if I, if I, have been absent for a few days, just especially like a place like Twitter where I'm like, I, what's going on in the world of Twitter right now? Because you get so many breaking news stories there and just cool opinions from people that you follow in whatever art world that you like or comedians you like to follow. You know, there's always that urge to go back and check it out. Facebook, I deleted and I have not once, literally not once in like the four years it's been, have I missed Facebook or thought about hopping back on there. Like, no, I deactivated yeah. my account and I was just done forever. And it was, it was such a great move. Yeah. I've never regretted it once. Do Facebook provides no value. Yeah. I don't miss the pictures of babies of kids that I barely knew in high school. You know, like it's like, I'm done here. I, I I'm, I've run out of use for this app. Plus you can get that on Instagram. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Cr crazy political nut jobs on Facebook. You can get that on Twitter. So what unique thing does Facebook provide at this point anymore? Like connection you know? to your older family members who are the ones like annoying you on the actual app. You're just like, all right, well, I wanted to like have a way to stay in contact with you, but you're annoying now, so I'm gonna go away. Yeah, I I don't need to stay in contact with you, and if if I do, it probably means you're you're cool anyway, and we talk outside of Facebook. Like cool as in I I actually enjoy your company, and that means we talk outside of Facebook either by emailing occasionally or talking on some some other platform or just texting so i don't need facebook yeah facebook sucks you suck facebook yeah facebook sucks we watched the social network like a couple weeks ago shell hadn't uh seen it since it was like first out and it was just added to netflix and i we felt like a rewatch and like maybe that was part of it but i was just like yeah fuck facebook man uh, i'm done with facebook 
as bad as Facebook is, the social network is that good. Yeah, it's a very good it's movie. Inversely proportional to each other. Yeah, I, I think I think it's still my number one of the twenty tens. I don't know if we ever plan to do a an episode of wrapping up that decade of film, but it's like my number three or four. It's it's high up there. My number one is obviously the master. The master. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. I, I go Phantom Thread over the Master, but no shame in that game. I love the Master. Master's in my top ten as well. But yeah, man, I think Social Network, I still think it's like the quote-unquote maybe the most important movie of the decade. And for the the movie that is the, or arguably the most important in terms of its impact, to also be that good is kind of astonishing. Well, it's kind of like accidentally prescient, you know, like it's one of those things of like sometimes movies can just get things right. And then like 10 years later, you're like, wow, you were like extra right. Like you by accident, like all the things that because I think when the movie first came out, people were like, oh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's not that bad. Like he's not like an outwardly big dick, you know, like screaming at people in board meetings from what we know. But at, and then like all these other kind of things kept coming out and kept coming out. And you're just like, oh, maybe like that movie touched on or understood more in the long run than we could have ever known when it first came out. So that's it just keeps getting and it's more vital as the years go on in terms of understanding that generation, that movement, that like time period when like the world really did change and like social that for better or for worse, that man changed the entire face of mankind. Like, and how we, how we like consume information and consume social media and Facebook really like was a linchpin moment in human history for better, for worse. And you know, it's the movie reckons with that. Yeah. I saw that, uh, earlier this week or maybe it was last week. I forget, but I saw a story that Jeff Bezos was about to become on the verge of becoming the world's first trillionaire. And the very next day there was a report of Facebook incorporated, uh, buying the Giphy, um, platform social platform for like half a billion dollars or something and i feel like that was mark zuckerberg's direct response of like well i gotta i gotta do something now to put the focus back on me in this in this war i'm losing with jeff bezos to be the richest douchebag in the world yeah well uh trillionaire jeff bezos is probably doing just fine in his bed oh amazon is the, the maybe i talked about this last week because the headline was so sickening it was Jeff Bezos on verge of becoming world's first ever trillionaire as Amazon soars due to coronavirus. Yeah, I feel bad because we've, <laughs> we've ordered so crazy. much shit from Amazon. <laughs> I mean, every uh, so many people have, of course, but just the phrasing of that was just so gross. It was just so gross. It was gross. All right, Tom, we, um, we've got a lot to talk about. Do you want to like dive into a couple things or you want to? You wanna... Yeah, but I actually just had a really offhand question. Sure. And then we can move on in five seconds. I don't care. So I know Twitter Twitter existed at the time of the movie, The Social Network, coming out. I wasn't on it yet, but I know it was around at least 09, 08. What about Instagram? Was Instagram around in 2010? Uh, I think so. I remember, I just remember like both apps, Twitter and Instagram, I joined early on and then didn't quite understand what they were, like, or how to best utilize them at first. And so like I gave up on them for several years or something or a couple years. And then I, uh, over time was like, oh, I get it. Uh, and yeah, I'm not sure. I've, I'm, I'm a late comer to most of these things. Like I was on Facebook later than other people. And that was only because yeah, pe- me. people made literally Jake, you know, Jake, he made me a fake account and like. He, since he knows all the people I grew up with, 
he like made a profile for me with like Phil loves poop. And it was like all these awful pictures of me. <laughs> and he like literally like befriended everyone. He like sent friend requests to like so many people that we had mutual friends with. And so all these people like befriended me. And then the first thing they saw was like pictures of me, like, like just looking like shit. And people were like, what the fuck is wrong with Phil? And I was like, I had to like get on there and like adjust my account and i was like well i guess i have a facebook account now because otherwise <laughs> jake's laughing showing you on his phone like look at this shit man everybody thinks you love poop yeah i mean there was that one night i don't know if you remember but there was the one night with like poop involved and um oh in new york yeah in new york and that was like one of the pictures he uploaded i was that was like one of the times i was like actually a little mad at jake i was like come on man oh i, I would have been furious was, if that was me yeah he like uploaded a picture of like a really embarrassing picture. And I was like, come on, man. Come embarrassing on. Picture <laughs> involving Phil, a couch, and fucking poop. And poop, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, that those were good times. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't have Facebook at the time of the social network. I wasn't on any social media apps and my life was probably better. Probably, yeah. Cause I remember seeing the trailer and it had that great trailer with the uh, Creep. Or the orchestral version of Creep. Um, which then became completely overused in movie trailers because Fincher is always the best trailer man in the game. But I remember being especially not interested because I just had no familiarity with any social media platforms at that point. But then the movie blew me away, and I still didn't join Facebook until a year or two after that movie when I went on a really fun music weekend with a whole group of friends where we rented this crazy house that was haunted. It just had, it was the weirdest house I've ever been in. And uh, so many great photos were taken of that weekend and I wanted to see them and they were all like, well, they're all on Facebook, man. Just join. So that's why I joined. Yeah. I, I remember that going to see the movie opening night. Um, and I remember the same night, the town came out. So I saw a double feature of uh, social network followed by the town. And then I drove to a bar. It's a good double bell now. Yeah. I, I saw those too. And then I drove to a bar to meet Jake and then I got hammered drunk that night. And I don't know, probably shit myself again, but um, you know, it was a good night. If you're hanging out with Jake, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> he's such a nice guy. He's such a, he's just like, if you go to hang out with him now, it's like at his house and his kids there and you got, and you know, it's much, it's much more laid back and chill. We're getting old. Yeah, Jake especially. Hi, Jake. Hope you're listening. Love you, buddy. He's not. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so, all right, let's let's dive into the week. So much has happened this week uh, since we last recorded. Um, the shows have aired. Uh, you know, we've watched things. The shows have ended. Um, news has come out. People have died. Uh, there's been a lot. And, um, we yeah. Just, yeah, we want to talk about a few of those things. I think the... Uh, biggest news in terms of the film world was HBO Max's announcement of the Snyder Cut. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the Snyder Cut is uh, of Justice League, the movie that came out uh, a couple years ago with Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill and uh, the whole crew of Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, everybody. And so uh, some quick background, really quick. Uh, the director of that film was the same director of Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman. His uh, daughter, unfortunately, uh, committed suicide while they were in production, uh, post-production on Justice League. And he was still tooling with it. And unfortunately, due to the family tragedy, he had to step away. And they called in Joss Whedon of Avengers and Buffy the Vampire fame to come and, you know, save slash, you know, retool the film for wide release. And so what has happened in the years since there's been a massive 
uh, campaign. Every single time Warner Brothers announces a new film, if you go on Twitter, it's nothing but hashtag release the Snyder Cut, release the Snyder Cut. It's become this weird um, lightning rod uh, uh, property where there's, I'm sure, genuine people who just are Zack Snyder fans and really want to see the movie. But then there's also this like political contingent of people that, like you said, are like have some weird conspiracy theories or it became some weird political thing. And uh, over time, wait, what's the what's the political conspiracy theory stuff? I haven't heard. Well, of I, I guess I shouldn't say it. like there's um, people that said, uh, you know, Warner Brothers uh, shit on Zack Snyder and they're trying to ruin his career and they took the movie away from him. They didn't trust him. There's people that said, um, uh, you know, basically that it was some plot to kind of get Zack off the movie after the poor reception of Batman versus Superman critically and the what they were concerned about the direction of Justice League. And some people kind of made it out to be like after he stepped aside, they threw him under the bus and they used the opportunity and they need to pay him back and they owe him. There's that um, side of it. And then there's this other side of um, just one, the feeling like it was like there's some like uh, there, there was a, a sexist targeting. I, I think if you follow a lot of women film critics, a lot of people who were in any way dismissive of the Snyder cut or of justice league or Zack Snyder were immediately attacked by this kind of raging fanboy subculture. Uh, probably the same one behind stuff like the last Jedi backlash and this kind of like weird subset of fandom that had been demanding this, uh, this new version of the movie. And, uh, you know, after a number of years, we finally, uh, it's been announced that Warner brothers is going to fund. They're going to give 20 to $30 million to Zack Snyder to finish uh, his Justice League cut, and it's going to premiere on HBO Max sometime next year. And it's just a fascinating development. Uh, did you ever, I mean, remind me, did you see Justice League? What did you think about it? Like, where, where are you at with all this? Do you have any interest in seeing his cut? Like, what what do you think? Uh, so a quick question before I give you my thoughts. When, when Zack Snyder left after the tragedy with his daughter and they brought Joss Whedon on, Whedon did reshoot anything right there were no reshirt no yeah he he reshot a lot of it according to Zack Snyder oh he did yeah according to Zack Snyder um only like 25 percent of his original vision is in the movie but he says that based on what people have told him he's he said he has not watched the Joss Whedon cut of the movie in full um but based on what people have told him he said there's only about 25 percent of what he initially wanted so HBO Max has announced there's going to be like a four hour cuts or and or like TV version that's like multiple episodes. It's depending on, I guess, how the edit goes. But there there the thing is, though, there's not a cut. There was not like some perfect three and a half hour finished cut of the movie that they were like, no, that's bullshit. We're going in a different direction. There's no special effects. There's deleted scenes. There's no color. Like it, like you said, it, or like I said, they need to spend like 30 million more dollars to complete this like rough cut of the movie basically that they tried to patch over. Yeah. Because I, because I'd always heard that the Zack Snyder cut is like this three hour movie. I feel like three hours is what I would always hear, but I don't remember him ever saying that he had finished it. Otherwise, why would they bring Joss Whedon in? I guess unless those conspiracy theories are true, which I tend to believe they aren't. So I did see justice league. Um, I don't remember anything about it. It came and went for me. Uh, I feel like I thought it was maybe a little bit better than Batman vs. Superman, uh, which I thought was pretty bad. Um, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> it was it was completely forgettable. Uh, I'm just trying to think of 
any of the the other characters they introduced. So the Flash, you know, Cyborg. Um, well, yeah, but yeah. I'm just saying, just to tag on to what Phil was saying, it's basically the DC Comics Avengers. That's what the Justice League is. For people who aren't aware, I'm sure everyone is. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't really remember anything about it. I, I would watch. I'll totally watch the Snyder Cut. I believe it's coming to HBO in 2021. Right? That's the plan. Well, this brings me to my next question. I steal your HBO. Does your HBO Go login immediately give you an HBO Max login? Do you know that? The new the new app that's coming out. Yeah, like if you're already an HBO Go subscriber, does that like just carry over, or do you have to become an HBO Max subscriber? I really don't know. I should look. I don't know either. What is HBO Max? What's the difference? HBO Max is um, because HBO is owned by Time Warner, which is obviously the owner of uh, uh, Warner Brothers. And so uh, you can look. They just announced um, their full slate uh, for the initial launch. And basically what it's going to be is uh, stuff like Friends. They're going to have the NBC collect, like a lot of stuff that was on NBC that was owned by Warner Brothers. So you'll have Friends. You'll have, they, they bought the Miyazaki. So you'll have all the Studio Ghibli stuff on there. You'll have um, uh, the Warner Brothers archives stuff on there. A lot of classic, like Wizard of Oz, Double Indemnity, like type classic Hollywood titles, as well oh, as okay. um, like in depth, you know, like 70s and 80s Warner Brothers titles. Uh, and it's just going to be a mix. It's uh, like I said, they're going to have the friend. They're going to have friends, and it's going to kind of be you have plus the stuff that's on HBO and regular HBO shows. And um, they, yeah, the, basically what's happening in streaming is there's going to be Peacock is coming sometime next year, and that's going to be the NBC version of it. And then there's going to be the Warner's version of it. There's the Disney Pluses. There's the Apples, and basically it's going to be up to each individual person to like look at what is available in each of these archives and decide which one's best for them. And I guess curate because uh, like Warner's archive has all the criterion collection on it or most of the criterion collection, but it's like, well, I already have the criterion app. Do I really need another app with all those same titles on it? You know? So but wait, the, the Warner, the Warner app is, is HBO max though. Yeah. Well, it's HBO max is being combined is basically a Warner brothers owned streaming service. So, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's not going to be a new Warner, a different, a separate Warner brothers streaming service that you're talking about. When you say that there's going to be the Peacock and the Warner brothers one, you mean HBO max is the Warner brothers. Yeah. So there's going to be HBO max, Disney plus, um, Apple TV. That's a terrible name. Why call it HBO max? If you have the entire catalog of a major Hollywood studio with you, like why not call it, WHBO or something. I don't know. Uh, That's really dumb. Yeah. I mean, I would, well, to answer your initial question, I would assume it's going to be more expensive maybe than HBO Go. And maybe they'll give HBO, or yeah, more expensive than HBO Go. And maybe they'll give HBO Go subscribers some kind of discount or deal to transition over to the new platform. Because does HBO Go then die? Does that become a defunct? I don't know. I'm sure they, they've probably platform. just recently announced, but I know that there was multiple people over the last few months who were still unsure, like who were like, I really don't know. Like I already pay for HBO. Does that mean I just get HBO Max? Like, I'm not sure. I, I should check. Yeah, I doubt we will. That seems too good to be true if you're getting an entire back catalog. But um, I, I will. Yeah, I'll see it. And I honestly, I think the investment, a $20 million investment, or thirty million dollar investment for that, I think financially that's a that's a good move because I think you're gonna get a ton of interest. I mean, it's a major comic book property. Like we said, it's the 
the the Warner or I'm sorry the DC version of the Avengers. That's a huge property, and to a lot of these fans, I think they're going to go in with the assumption that they're basically seeing a brand new movie. Yeah. How how much that ends up being true, who knows? I think I think a lot of people are going to walk away disappointed. Like there's more similarities than there are differences. Yeah. At the end of the day, um, but that doesn't matter if they all tune in to watch it. So that type of budget for that product you're going to be able to put out, I think is honestly, I think it's a bargain and I think it was a smart move for them to finally do it. Well, it's kind of what basically what happened is Netflix came around in the beginning and everyone, all these studios were like, yeah, we'll give, we'll give you our product to promote on there and get people interested in this movie or whatever that we released last year. And over the years, once Netflix gained more power and started acquiring movies of their own at film festivals and started outbidding all these studios, they kind of started being like, well, why are we going to give our top tier titles to you to help you promote your brand when we could have our own streaming app? So now you're going to have your HBOs, your Peacocks, your Disney's and basically HBO Max is what people are going to have to decide is like, okay, well, HBO Max has Friends, South Park, The Big Bang Theory and Wonder Woman. Like, is that stuff worth it for me to pay $9.99 a month or whatever it's going to be? Or do I need that on top? Like, or is it worth it to also pay $9.99 on top of that for Peacock so I can have The Office as well? You know, so instead of it all being on Netflix, like I think people used to you know, rely on and now studios are like, hold on, like why we're not giving it all to Netflix. They're our competitor. Now we are setting up our own. So it's going to kind of be up to people to a la carte and kind of look into each individual service to determine what's useful to them. And if they need it, because for me personally, I don't, I don't watch office reruns enough to warrant like starting a whole new streaming service just for, um, you know, just Peacock just for the office or something like that. So for me, I'm like, I don't, you know, I've got t- five other streaming services. I don't know that I need this one on top of all those other ones. There's still thousands of things for me to watch. And if something like the office is so important to me, I'd probably go spend the 50 hard dollars on like a physical copy that I just always own, you know, because this is what I don't understand. <laughs> so many people who were freaking out with the office was about to leave Netflix yeah, the, you, can, buy the you can go buy it. You it's a one-time <laughs> cost, and you have it forever. Just buy them. Yeah, like we were talking. I, I feel like yeah. Netflix handled it really smart. Uh, I just feel like there was that period of several years where Ted Sarandos and everyone over there were like, I can't believe these guys don't see the value of this. And they were just stockpiling all that profit and putting it towards uh, original material that they owned before the studio's got wise to the idea of like, oh, we have all this property. Let's just put it online. And the rights to a show like The Office are going to be worth a billion dollars. Why would we give that away when we could rake in all that profit? But I mean, the Peacock has way more. Did you say that HBO Max is going to have the streaming rights to Friends? That's not going to go on Peacock? No, because Warner Brothers, if you look at like, if you watch any episode of Friends, you'll see the Warner Brothers logo at the end of it. Warner Brothers. Uh, So that was a, yeah. What about Seidfeld, uh, Cheers, Will and Grace? It's, I mean, there are a ton of NBC shows. It's all going to get moved around. Like, it depends on who owns yeah. this. Like, you look at Mad Men, and even though it aired on AMC, Lionsgate is the company that actually paid for those episodes. So it's not necessarily an AMC-owned product. Um, and who owns Lionsgate? I'd have to look. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. But, you know, the, all these things are going to be spreading out. They're not all going to be on Hulu and Netflix anymore. And so you're going to have different companies who are going to be like, well, we've got friends. And then you're going to have Disney Plus being like, well, we've got Hamilton. 
And, you know, it's going to be up to people to kind of, some people like us are going to be like, well, I'll just have six or seven streaming apps and I'll just pay for it. And then there's going to be other people who are like, well, you know, I've got Netflix and Disney Plus and I guess the other ones are just going to go by the wayside. Yeah, I wonder how much Netflix is going to suffer in this because they're, I mean, they're, their hold on it is definitely going to be diluted over in the next couple of years. Although I know their, I know subscriptions went up. I think they added something like 16 million new subscribers since uh, coronavirus hit. Yeah, and the lockdown started. Walmart, uh, Netflix, and um, Amazon have benefited from the coronavirus immensely. Like just people being stuck at home, unable to do things, and uh, you have. Uh, you know, I I do think Netflix because they got in the game so early, can kind of they they do have that comfort or that you know built in base of people who kind of you know because some I'll, I'll so often hear somebody say like oh it's not available on streaming I'm like yes it is you just have to pay three dollars for it on Amazon and th- what they really mean is it's not available on Netflix and that's kind yes. of a power that Netflix has that I don't know if a Peacock or an Apple TV can ever catch up to because I don't think they're in the same game necessarily like amazon is not producing content to become the next great movie studio they're producing content to bring you into h or into amazon prime and do their other products as well so yes you know so it's, it's the, every the, company's the prestige yeah yeah the prestige shows are where it's at for most of these companies because only disney has the rights to star wars and marvel and <laughs> if you don't if basically if you don't have those properties you cannot sustain a major streaming platform based on film rights. Like those are the two biggest ones in the world. Disney has both of them. They're set. They they probably don't have to do anything for a few years and could just rest on their laurels having those. Plus all the Disney classics, obviously. And like we said last week, they're getting Hamilton in a month. Um, yeah, it's crazy too with Netflix, man. We could be talking about Blockbuster on demand like we're talking about Netflix right now. And they just they completely fucked up. Um, yeah, the the value really is in shows, and yeah, I guess we'll see when the dust settles where everything goes. But yeah, like we and we were just talking off air before we started recording about how Mad Men's leaving Netflix. Get the Blu-rays, people. Just get the Blu-rays. Not only do you get to watch the shows, you get great bonus features. You can listen to audio commentaries. You can listen, you can watch deleted scenes and interviews and it will never, the internet connection will never crap out. It will always be 1080p by physical media. You won't have to worry about this shit, you fools. I wonder what I'll, what I'll splurge on. I mean, I, I feel like I already subscribed to so many fucking streaming platforms. I yeah, have to like I sit down like I'm doing taxes and really work all this out. Yeah, I mean, like like we've been saying, people like I'm I'm curious what average families kind of how they weigh it out, um, especially with like I wonder where sharing apps is going to go in the next like five plus years, because you know it's so easy to share your Hulu login with like twenty people like I do, and you know I'm just curious because you're going to have people like or companies like Disney who do have Marvel and Indiana Jones and Pixar and stuff, and but they're not like producing new shows every week whereas you have your netflix where they like they drop 10 new fucking movies slash shows every friday and yeah they put all that massive profit when everyone else was sleeping into new material and like you said earlier netflix is really synonymous with streaming right now i don't know how long that lasts but 
you know, for the 75-80% of people who are very casual viewers who aren't super fans or nerds, you know, Netflix is basically synonymous with like Kleenex being a tissue or Coke being soda, you know? Yeah. Like like you talk to someone's parents and you tell them about a movie they should watch and they say, oh, is it on Netflix? Like they don't even say, where can I find it? You know, that's how my parents talk about streaming. They just ask if it's on Netflix. And if it isn't, they, they kind of move on. Yeah, I'm like, just go to your Amazon Prime app and pay four bucks for it or whatever. And they're like, no, that's too much. That's too much work. Yeah. Or what is that? Yeah. When is when is Amazon get that Lord of the Rings show running? Dude, don't even get that movie or that show cost a billion dollars before they even entered production. It's crazy. I know, and but where 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 are they in the process? I feel like I haven't heard an update in months. Everything. I mean, everything shut down. I mean, I imagine. Yeah, I imagine they're just going to be in like a year's worth of pre production. Um, I heard a, I heard a thing yesterday. Um, I was listening to a commentary. Um on Toy Story 2 and they were saying like on average an animated movie takes four years to make uh, because they, uh-huh. they spend only a year actually animating it but they spend the first three years just in prep um, just because they have to get literally everything down before they start the animation process like that's the last thing they do is they right. and so um, they, and it has to be basically like they don't want to fuck around and make junk so or extra stuff that they don't need so they're like all right we have to have it perfect and i imagine lord of the rings is kind of in this development hell of like two years of pre-production and two plus years of production it's going to be a while till we actually see anything like who knows if that's even worth the billion i can't imagine it's worth the billion plus they spent on it well that's you compare that to something like the 20 to 30 uh warner brothers is putting into the snyder cut Right, I mean, Lord of the Rings. Obviously, this is going to be a brand new TV show, new cast, uh, a different retelling, modification of the story, the adaptation from the films. But like, we already have those films, which were massively successful, which satisfied the vast majority of Lord of the Rings fans and mainstream fans. So, how how big is that audience going to be? I mean, obviously, they're banking on it being the next Game of Thrones. And then obviously the the IP is there to possibly make it that successful, but Game of Thrones was like Lord of the Rings, a massively successful book series, but it hadn't been adapted yet. Like there was no there was no visual component to that story before. Right, Lord of the Rings. There's already not just like the 1978 Hobbit animated movie or or whatever. There's a massively huge trilogy that already exists. That is everyone's go-to visual Lord of the Rings story. So you're not, you're, you're comparing yourself to that now too, which I think is a huge obstacle, you know? Like if, if that trilogy didn't exist, yeah, you put that billion down in a heartbeat and now you're the prime filmic adaptation of the lord of the rings story that's huge that's invaluable like there's no price that's too too high for something like that but to already have that film trilogy out there i I don't know how much that affects it i mean i'm excited to watch it i'm very curious i'll definitely check it out whenever it comes out because it's either going to be really good a disappointment or like the most fascinating failure ever but i'm nowhere near as excited as i would be if if nothing no visual adaptation already did not already exist you know yeah like if those films had come out already i'd be i'd be like counting down the days to watch something like that well and i think a lot of those companies also forget that 
Lord of the Rings and your, or not Lord of the Rings, but Game of Thrones and your Breaking Bads weren't as successful as they were in their final seasons as they were in their first seasons. And most of the, and those two shows, especially like when you think of like some of the biggest shows of recent years, like the massive audience that grew with Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, those people like came to the show over years. Like that was not just like season one was the juggernaut that took over pop culture. It was like, yeah, season one was a big deal. It was good. But then like over time, more people discovered it on Netflix and caught up. And like by the final season, it was a true cultural movement. Uh, Whereas I think Amazon's hoping something like Lord of the Rings is going to do that like by season one. And it's like, you got to develop trust. You got to build these things. It takes time. Like I guarantee the people who were producing Game of Thrones season one were not thinking like, oh, by the end of this, we're clearly going to be the biggest show ever, you know, to ever produce television, you know, in the history of TV, whatever, you know. So I, it's, it seems like a lot of these companies trying to put the horse before the, or the cart before the horse, I should say. Yeah. I mean, the Lord of the Rings pilot episode will probably be one of the most watched streaming episodes of TV ever. I guess it just depends. Do they hold on to that audience? And yeah, Netflix specifically. Like you said, I mean, Vince Gilligan himself directly credits Netflix for that audience for Breaking Bad growing exponentially. Yeah. You know? he, he would talk about it. He's like, yeah, it wasn't until basically the start of season four when our ratings were actually good because everyone started binging those seasons on Netflix. And I know that's how tons of people are watching Better Call Saul right now. A show Same I way. have yet to catch up on. I really want to. That's like high on the list. I think that yeah. that'll be a show like when people are like, oh, it's on the last season. That's probably when I'll like be desperate and catch up. It is it not the last season right now? <laughs> I, that just that just aired. I don't know. I'm really bad. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a second to last. They just. I think it's done. I think they just finished airing season four, and uh, maybe they're doing one more. But it's good. I'm I'm actually not current myself. I am. A season behind but it's a very good show definitely worth watching well all right on that note let's talk about some uh more good shows there's a couple things i'll bring up at the end but i think we're running late on time so let's let's dive into a good show called the last dance if you're ready oh man i'm so i could talk about this for the rest of my life well let's not let's not do that but let's talk about the last dance (laughs) i want to i want to talk about it forever Every day was a battle. Dennis, get up here! Boom. They don't hear it. See Dennis for 48 hours. No matter what we did, it seemed like it was a story. Scotty was being selfish. When the trust is broken, it's sort of shocking. I never hated Scotty. Six championships in eight years. We were the greatest team ever. What time is that? I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. That man get a free run of me. It was his team. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. All right, all right. The Last Dance, uh, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It is the 10-part ESPN documentary on Michael Jordan and his career, uh, specifically highlighting his final season, The Last Dance, with his with the Chicago Bulls in the 1998 season when they were going for their second three-peat of the national uh, champions. And, uh, yeah, Tom, tell me what you thought. I know this is a big deal for you. I watched it as it aired. You caught up uh, the last day or two. And, uh, yeah, I had, I definitely had some, we, we already know, we are, I would say we already cleared that we like it. We, I know you like it. We, we talked about your history with basketball, um, and my, my history with basketball, since we already covered all that, let's try and like talk about, you know, these specific, like last six episodes, what you got out of the experience as a whole, uh, what were your favorite parts? Talk to me, buddy. Talk to me. 
Right, so we uh, talked about the first four episodes, so since we last spoke about the show, they aired episodes five through ten. Um, to me, this is, if this were a film, this would hands down be my favorite film of the year. Like, I can already, unless PTA releases a, drops a surprise film, like someone would an album in December, nothing is touching this. This is... You know, I know I'm not alone, man, but I feel like this show was made for me. And just like every other kid who was obsessed with Michael Jordan in the 90s just spent the last couple of weeks watching this show. I did wait. Um, I watched uh, episodes five and six a while ago, but seven through ten, I waited. Um, not because I wasn't excited, but because you, Phil knows I'm a, I'm a tantric viewer. I like to delay the ending of things as much as possible and if we didn't have this podcast to record i probably still wouldn't have finished it just because i i, I hate I you <laughs> want, I, I wouldn't want to say goodbye to it um it is so so good okay so as someone who knows a lot about michael jordan the 90s era bulls those two three peat runs i i was shocked how much new information and especially new footage they were able to provide. I mean, I know obviously they touted it as there's a lot of stuff here that no one has seen before because this is footage that has just been on the shelf for 20 years. But it was amazing how much new stuff and uh, how many details they were able to provide someone like me who considered himself a super fan as a kid to really fill out a lot of the, the missing puzzle pieces about that era because I remember in 1998 being 12 and knowing that, like watching that final year, knowing that it was going to be the last year, just everyone knew. Like the show uh, very easily is able to portray. Like it was a big news story that they were going into that season and that it was all going to be broken up. I, I basically knew that Michael Jordan was going to retire after they won that championship. And that's a really weird thing for a fan, you know? Yeah. To, to know that going in, because it wasn't like he was some 42-year-old hanging on. He won the MVP that year. And they were obviously still the best team. They were off coming off three straight championships. It would have been like if in 2002, the Lakers won and you knew Shaq was going to retire and Kobe was going to be traded, and Phil Jackson, the coach of both uh, dynasties, was going to walk away as well. So that's a it's a very strange thing, and I think one of the most interesting things this show does as a fan of Michael Jordan and the Bulls is give a lot of insight into that thought process and kind of explaining what was going on behind the scenes. So on a on a macro or on a on a micro level as a basketball and a Bulls fan. I think that was one of the great successes of this show. On a macro level, I think we have never, ever, ever, ever seen Michael Jordan like this in such an intimate way. And to be able to see him grow emotional, talk about inside stories, like talk about stories from practice or in hotel rooms or locker rooms, how he was feeling, dealing with his dad's murder, all of this stuff. He was always so, and the show touches on this a little bit, he was always so guarded with his personal life um, while he was the superstar. So even though everyone idolized him and you wanted to be like him and he was your role model and your hero and he was so like positive and um, 
uplifting. Like, he really, I, I felt like he had this image of, you know, follow my lead and you'll, you can achieve greatness or you'll be a better person or a better whatever you want to be. But he was able to do that without really showing a lot of himself. So to get this look all these years later, I think just, you know, even though he's such a flawed character and there are so many things about him we could talk about and really criticize and tear apart, it really just helped me appreciate him that much more as a human being. And it really humanized him for good and for bad in a way that I honestly never thought we would see until after his death. And then the stories would come out and maybe footage of him when he was alive that had never seen the light of day would start coming out. I'm really appreciative that he was willing to do this project and kind of bear his soul in such a way, even though he still is closed off on a lot of topics. But this, to me, this is about as good as we could have asked for in terms of like trying to understand the real Michael Jordan and all the, the great details and asides and all the great basketball footage and all that fan stuff that I loved. I'm just really glad we got to see this about a guy who was legitimately my hero, like truly my hero growing up. So, um, yeah, I just thought it was amazing, and we, we can get into more specifics. I know you have questions you want to ask, but before I ramble on for another five minutes, I'll leave it there and pass the buck back to you, buddy. Yeah, I had uh, very much the same experience in terms of, like, I had basic loose bits of information that I knew about him, and watching them, how they all, the timeline of them, and some of the ways, like, oh, I didn't know that happened right before that. Um, some of that was really underlined a lot of the emotion, I think, in terms of, my favorite episodes, I think seven and eight are probably the highlight for me in terms of that's when Jordan is getting emotional, talking about being competitive and really stating his case in terms of like, I like seven ends, I think on like a mic drop moment of like he, him needing a break. Cause he gets so emotional talking about like, I didn't do this just for me. I did this for the everyone. This was a team effort. Um, I brought guys along with me. I gave them that joy too. And he's just basically like, look, if you don't like that, then don't play with me. And I refuse to apologize. And like you said, I think it's, there are some things that Michael Jordan reveals about himself almost accidentally through the documentary in terms of his competitive nature. It's almost comically high. It becomes like a running joke almost. And it has on Twitter and stuff. Just like, I remember I saw a meme that was just like him being like jazz in Utah. I took that personal and you know, you're just like, yeah, that's kind of how he was. Like he would find anything that it would take to get that chip on his shoulder, to drive him to succeed, to dominate. And he, you know, like I said, I think I said on the last episode, I ended every episode kind of like wanting to go fucking work out or something like, or go shoot hoops. You're like, man, I just want to go be good at something or like try really hard at something. And I kind of would leave yeah. episodes that way. And I, I guarantee there's going to be like fucking, a thousand athletes who watch this and are going to be dicks next season, <laughs> you know, who are just going to like be pushing each other be like, I got to be like MJ. And well, that that's interesting. I wonder because I feel like, I, I don't know if he talks about this so openly, if this was done 10 years ago before his hall of fame acceptance speech. Do you know about his hall of fame speech? Yeah, that was, yeah, he it, it, very bitter kind of, um, settling scores it's yeah, very I don't high know if it's yet. bitter yeah but it's just it's him it was kind of shocking because you know i think a lot of people thought okay now we're gonna see michael open up and 
really show his gratitude and talk about some things that he had talked about before. But instead, it was just, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> You're the reason why I was able to do this. Like, you know, they talk about the 98 finals. You know, it ends very famously on the shot. His last shot is a bull over Brian Russell. And there's a lot of talk about Brian Russell. And he took it personally that Russell thought he could guard him. And even in the Hall of Fame speech, a decade later, he still talks. He, he calls out Brian Russell and basically tells him to sit down, clown. And it's like, dude, you, you accomplished it all. Like, you did it. Why, why are you still holding this? So I think if that doesn't become a huge story of his Hall of Fame speech about, yo, Mike, why are you still holding on to this anger? And why are you still letting this fuel you? It's over. Like, your career, you, you set it all. You put it all out there on the court. And I think knowing that allowed him to open up a little more for this show. So you mentioned seven and eight. I agree. Those are two of the standouts, especially episode seven. So for those who haven't seen it real quick, I just want to explain where we are in the period of time for those episodes. So that's when um, obviously the entire show takes place over the course of the 97, 98 season, which culminates in their sixth and final championship. But while the show is progressing that year, it starts basically with MJ's rookie season and moves forward and forward in time over the course of his entire career with the Bulls franchise leading up to 98. So by episode seven, we're at the time where they three-peat for the first time. They play the Phoenix Suns against MVP Charles Barkley. He uses that as fuel like, okay, you're going to give Chuck the MVP. I'll take the championship. But at this time, Jordan's talking about how exhausted he is. He's going for three straight titles. He was considering retirement the season before. He says the main reason why he didn't was because guys like Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas, who were two foes he had to overcome to get to the top of the mountain, had never three-peated. So he thought, if I can do that, that's going to separate me. So he does it. He gets the three-peat. He's weighing, do I want to come back or not? And then his dad gets murdered. And his dad, who's his best friend in the world, um, just he he pulls over on the side of the road and gets shot. And not only is he shot and killed, but he's missing for several weeks. And that's got to be so fucking awful. Just the uncertainty of that. So all this is going on. They eventually find his body. They find out he's been murdered. And while this is happening, that season is when Michael Jordan's gambling. I don't know if you want to call them problems or just his hobby. He, he'd call it a hobby. Other people may call it a problem. Come to light. He's involved. He has to go uh, give a witness testimony at a court case for a, a guy he associates with who has been arrested and is charged with drug trafficking, maybe gambling, something to do with drugs and gambling. And Jordan had to write him a check for almost 60 grand as a gambling debt. So people are starting to break down his reputation a little bit. And he's getting exhausted. And then his dad dies. And then rumors come out that maybe that was somehow related. Like maybe he owed some bad people money and they took it out by killing his dad, which clearly just breaks his heart. Like not only pisses him off, but completely destroys him. So he decides to retire and he goes and plays baseball, takes those two years off. And then episode eight is basically him coming back after the break in baseball and uh, losing in the playoffs in that comeback season when his body wasn't fully ready as a basketball player. And so what does he do? How does he take that loss? He takes that loss by then coming back 
and leading the literal greatest team that basketball has ever seen, a 72-10 Bulls team that wins the championship. The greatest season in NBA history. Talk to anyone. We all agree it's the greatest season in NBA history, the 96 Chicago Bulls. So just the work ethic of this guy to retire on top, go play baseball after 15 years off, do pretty good considering. I mean, obviously the expectations for a guy like Jordan is going to be different. You got a lot of shit. But if you believe the people in this documentary, they were saying, you know, he was getting better and better. He could have maybe gone pro if he decided to stick with baseball for another couple of years. Like he was on the right track. But he doesn't. He decides to come back after a year and a half. And he gets his sea legs. And once he gets his sea legs, he just kicks it into another level. And suddenly, not only is he, once again, the greatest player winning MVPs and championships, but he is the leader of the greatest team of all time. And you talk about that ending of Episode 7, man. It's not just him breaking down crying, but it's the montage. He's talking about, yeah, I I had to sacrifice to be as good as I could be and to make my teams as good as they could be. And that created a lot of sacrifice because at this point in the documentary, a lot of his teammates are talking about like, yeah, I don't even know if I'd call him a nice guy. He's kind of a bully. He's kind of a dick, all this shit. And you can tell he gets really passionate. And then the music kicks in and you see these amazing highlights of not only Jordan doing this crazy shit on the court, but also his teammates succeeding. And then you see him celebrating with everyone after championship, 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 championship. And it's like the most, it's the most goosebump inducing shit I've watched in so long. I was just like you, like I wanted to run through my wall after that and like go run a marathon or something, man. It was the coolest thing ever. And I just think the, the, the show did such a good job of getting into Michael's head like that, but it also needed to be a really masterfully edited and composed 10 hour piece to really work as successfully as it did. So I think it accomplished that on on every level, basically, you know? Yeah. So I sent you Ken Burns' uh, quote about the documentary. And yes. yeah. um, I did want to talk a little bit about that because I do think it's a fascinating kind of the reactions to it since it's finished airing um, from players and other filmmakers and um, everything has been pretty fascinating. And I, I do think it's I'm, – I'm pretty in the middle about it. I basically am of the stance that um, – you're kind of weighing your options. Uh, the big controversy sort of around the film is that Jump 23, uh, Michael Jordan's production company, is one of the pr- producers of the film or of the yeah. series. And I think what you're saying about how inspirational this is, and I think, like you said, Jordan had that speech at uh, the Hall of Fame. And I think what this series does in a lot of ways is underline or remind people like, yeah, I'm the greatest. And it kind of like makes its case for why Jordan is the greatest. And while I think there's certainly an incredibly strong case for that, um, there's people like Ken Burns of like Civil War and baseball and some of the major like historical documentaries who have kind of taken umbrage with the movie. So I'll read his quote really quick. Um, He calls into question the idea that Michael Jordan's production company is the one producing the documentary. He says, quote, if you are there influencing the very fact of it getting made, it means that certain aspects that you don't necessarily want in aren't going to be in, period. 
period, said Burns, himself saying he would, quote, never, 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 never allow such a participation on one of his films, added the documentarian, quote, and that's not the way you do good journalism, and it's certainly not the way you do good history, my business. Now, I think that that's true. I think you could argue that in some ways the goal of this is not journalism, and I think that the goals of something like this is different than O.J. Made in America, which is, I think, a much more political uh, story and much more about kind of broad ideas. And obviously it's easier with someone like OJ to villainize him. Whereas, you know, there, but there are aspects of Jordan's personality. Like you talked about how there were players who were like, yeah, he was a dick to me. But I think all those players who say that eventually come around like, yeah, but it was for the best. There's no interviews with players who were like, yeah, he was a dick to me and it ruined my fucking career. Actually. Like I, I tried really hard, but it wasn't good enough for him. So like it actually ruined me. You know, there's none of that. There's none of um, people who were like, really down on Michael. Uh, and there's not a lot of like investigation into his, you know, political blind spots, you know, like shit, like donating to, you know, giving money to prisons or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and he's had some controversial things and involved in controversial things. And there are some of those issues that the documentary just doesn't touch on. And I think it's certainly fair to say this documentary is about basketball and it is about him as an athlete. And I think that's totally valid. And I think if you're making something like this, you have to weigh that option of like, yeah, but the only way to make that is through his production company. And the only way he's going to give himself access to me is if we let him produce it. And is this portrait that he's going to give me worth, uh, you know, setting aside some of those other questions that I'm not going to be allowed to ask him. So, you know, that's going to vary for each viewer, but I was curious, you know, if you were at all at any point kind of suspicious of the, of the project as a kind of puff piece for Michael Jordan or a kind of, um, just making the case for Michael Jordan without questioning him in some of the areas that maybe he should have been questioned in. Like, uh, I was looking at the very last episode features interviews with his family, for instance. And you're like, wow, they got one quote from his son. I would really love to hear more about what it was like having Michael Jordan as a father, you know, and the movies just, or the show's not interested in kind of going in that or doesn't have the time. And you know, there's all these things that I obviously understand in terms of like, you only have so much time you want to cover certain things and, you know, but I'm curious what your reaction is to some of those comments and some of the, um, backlash has come out. I've heard that Scotty Pippen was not happy about his portrayal in the documentary. I've heard from uh, Horace Grant was not very happy with how he was portrayed. And there's a number of, <laughs> I, I bet he yeah, was. Um, there's been a number of players who were like, Hey, this, this is not what I agreed to. And uh, you know, so I'm curious what your reaction is to that. I yeah, go ahead. That's interesting. I, um, I know the Ken Burns quote and I haven't seen any of the backlash from players yet. So I'd have to look into that. This is, what I think. Uh, what Ken Burns brings up is totally valid. That is a, a genuine conflict of interest. And I think that raises a lot of questions. But it all depends on the story you want to tell. Also, and this is, I think, the most important thing about this particular story and this particular documentary. As far as I know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think this is the case. Jordan owns all the footage from that 98 last dance season oh like that unprecedented access that he gave that was jordan that was the bulls or anybody else like all that camera footage all this amazing footage we see was jordan's that that was what jordan hired right right so i don't i don't think you get the footage unless you agree to whatever deal jordan wants to make and at that point i think you say is it worth it and to me the answer is unquestionably yes because I do think there are plenty of things you could uh, 
put Michael up against the wall and talk about. I mean, obviously this this show only went up to ninety eight. It went up, it ended with his Bulls career, but you talking about players who said who could have said, yeah, he was a bully to the point where it ruined my career. I mean, Kwame Brown is the perfect example. If you want to talk about a player who Jordan ruined, I mean, he was he was a bust anyway. But this is a guy when Jordan came back after his second retirement and joined the Washington Wizards. Kwame Brown was this kid coming out of high school. He was the number one draft pick in the league. He was supposed to be the next great big man. Jordan played with him for two years before moving back into just the front office role. And by all accounts, he straight up bullied this guy to the point where his his uh, his um, confidence and his personality, he just like retreated into a shell and was never the same. And he could just never recover. And then to make matters worse, he was then moved to the Lakers and had to play with Kobe Bryant. So you want to talk about two two elite basketball players who are just going to be the biggest pricks on the court possible. You could have asked for a worse combo for maybe a sensitive guy like Kwame Brown, who it clearly looked like he wasn't going to live up to his expectations for one thing. And then for another thing, you're dealing with guys like Jordan and Kobe, who are the best at their position and the best to ever do it. And then they're not going to put up with you not living up to what you're what they think you're capable of right so if they wanted to bring up a player who said yeah he was a bully and it wasn't for the best they could have easily brought in Kwame Brown but that's not what the story's about the story's not about Jordan joining the Washington Wizards so why bring that up now the other stuff in terms of like his political if you want to call them missteps or just his political beliefs that are maybe more controversial they do bring up one they talk about the the 1990 Senate race in uh, North Carolina with, is it Jesse Helms? Yeah, yeah, and his, fa- his, yeah, name, and his right? failure to kind of sp- say anything about it. Yeah, or there was this known... Not rate, failure, there was this unwillingness. Well, yes, his, his unwillingness, his decision not to say anything. So uh, episode five, I believe, talk about talks about, because it's at this point in his career, there's a 1990 Senate race that's about to happen in his home state of North Carolina. This uh, incumbent Republican senator, this racist white asshole, Jesse Helms, is running for like his fourth term. And on the Democratic side of the ticket, they got this up-and-coming black uh, guy. I forget his name. But, you know, he's gaining a lot of momentum. Apparently, the, the race was getting pretty close. And they were begging Jordan to say something. Like, if you endorse this guy, it could do a lot of good. For this Senate race and African Americans across the state, Jordan's response was Republicans buy Nike shoes too. And basically saying, my pocketbook matters more to me than getting influence in the political world and putting my neck out there and maybe pissing off a large part of my fan base. And the show does talk about that. And they they question Jordan about that. And maybe that's something that it was such a big news story that it would feel completely phony if they didn't address it so maybe all of the controversies like that and his gambling problems they decided to bring up because it was a major factor during the course of his career and all of maybe the 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 assumptions about his personality or some flaws that he may have that never really saw the light of day they decided to gloss over personally i'm okay with it because you have to make a decision about what you want your story to be and like obviously there's room for criticism in anything and like i said i think ken burns 
his quote is is totally valid and i think that's really worth considering and like sitting on and deciding what you're okay and what you're not okay with seeing but at the end of the day you could question any true life story to death and say why wasn't this included why wasn't that included eventually a filmmaker has to make a decision on what they want the story to be about and what they want to focus on and i I sometimes get annoyed when people question certain things that they see or read because some things were omitted and they're the way they're kind of questioning it is that there's like a nefarious plot behind it yeah when ultimately maybe it's just not germane to the story or maybe they questioned jordan's kids about like what was it like to be his son while he's like the greatest athlete in the world maybe their answers were like we were five i don't know you know yeah and maybe it just wasn't that interesting or maybe they decided they'd rather focus on the players or on phil jackson or something like that i don't know but to me the product that they showed the product that that we got was so great that i don't feel like anything suffered i was not wanting for something that they did give me Okay, well, that, I was going to say that was my next or one of my questions was, um, what would you have liked more of? I, I think the only thing I kind of left the show wanting more of was I actually think, and we talked about this a little bit, but episodes nine and ten were not complete before these were um, set to air. This this was scheduled to air later in the summer, and uh, basically because of the quarantine, they moved up the schedule, and that forced the director and editors to edit the last two episodes through quarantine and through sharing uh, edits and stuff. And they kind of finished the last two episodes at the last minute. Um, Now I think the last two episodes are very good. I think they're good for what they are. Um, But I do, I do wish, I I think the last two episodes spend more time on the play for play of the games during the finals, which, you know, is I understand it's, that's sort of what the season is about, but there was a part of me that kind of felt like, I would have liked episode nine to have wrapped up all of the finals. And I would have loved to see episode 10 be more about Jordan's post bulls years and what he, cause he became a, a, a team owner and became like, you know, a Jerry Krause and, you know, had a different perspective. And I, I, I think it would have been interesting to see that kind of aftermath of the last dance and the show doesn't show any of that. I think that's kind of the only thing I left really kind of like really wanting a little bit more to hear his perspective on, because you have to think like, hey, like once you're not in that star position and you're taking a whole team into account, like has that affected the way you perceive the sport? Like what has changed over the years? Like, do you regret anything? And, you know, I, I think there's a, some lack of that towards the end when it's much more about them winning. Um, that was kind of my only minor gripe. And it's not even a gripe. It's just kind of like I, I would have liked one more episode of just like what's his life like after that? Because it's just as interesting to me. I could I could be down with a postscript epilogue episode like that if it was an additional episode. I would not want what you just said at the expense of what we got in those final two episodes. Like I'd much rather have the the detailed breakdown of that ninety eight final series and then the immediate aftermath of that series versus truncating all of that footage and talking about him as a wizard's owner and him moving on to life after basketball because that's again to me that's not what the story is about like the the documentary is called the last dance it's all building up to this 98 season and the end of this season like this whole thing and how everything that happened before culminates to this this is the end 
like the 98 finals is the end of this story it's like lady bird how it ends on that great shot of her first getting to college and then it suddenly cuts and it feels like an abrupt ending at first but then you realize like her life after this is a story for another time and to me that's what that would be for this story jordan on the wizards jordan as a front office guy working in washington and then going to work in charlotte that's a story for another time if they wanted to make an episode 11 like if they wanted to do something additional obviously i'll watch all the footage i can get but i would much rather have the episodes be what they were than what you said personally because i mean also for me as someone who is like a basketball junkie and especially right now missing basketball so much all of that footage was crack to me that was so good i could i could have like I went on YouTube and just tracked down the full games, which I'm probably going to watch in bed tonight, you know? So I, I loved all that stuff. And I also think I'm super impressed by the quality, just in terms of the aesthetic of the final two episodes. There's a there's this one great sequence um, in episode nine where at this point they're just going back and forth between 97 and 98. So the two Utah Jazz finals. And... Anyone who knows, if you've seen the documentary by now, or if you were just a fan at the time, everyone knows about the Michael Jordan flu game, which he clarifies as the as the food poisoning game. And in episode nine, there's this really great sequence that is in the documentary uh, where they focus on Steve Kerr for a minute, who was this role player for the Chicago Bulls, this guard, the shooting guard. He's one of the best three-point shooters ever. He's currently the coach of the... Golden State Warriors and the filmmaker asks him you know did you and MJ have a personal relationship especially talking about your fathers and Steve Kerr says no we never really talked about that I feel like that was too raw for both of us to really bring up and you're kind of like what is wait what what is Steve Kerr be with his father and then they go into this whole side story tangent about Steve Kerr's educational dad who ended up moving to Beirut to run this school for expats over there and he ends up getting murdered when steve kerr is like 18 years old um and it's brutal it's a brutal story they handle it in like three minutes or something so they interview steve kerr about this and obviously at this point in the documentary we know about michael jordan's dad getting murdered how close they were steve kerr seemed to have a similarly close relationship with his dad a lot of it was centered around basketball growing up uh in los angeles rooting for those epic ucla college basketball teams which are the best teams in college basketball history um and he talks about you know how tough it is to uh play basketball without his dad there which we know is the same thing that jordan's been going through now after his first retirement is playing playing and making the nba finals and winning that first finals without his dad there and there's that incredible footage of him just sobbing on the floor yeah just like heaving holding the basketball it's just unreal footage for me so, that was an example of some of the stuff that i'd seen that footage but i didn't quite have the context for it and so seeing right. it within context i was like oh that means so much more to me now so much more now so any, anyway sorry i know i'm rambling but i just want to say this part so uh in this episode nine which they were editing while this was being filmed which is why i'm so impressed i want to highlight it so they have this whole steve kerr side story and then they cut back to kerr and he says you know the one thing i always think about whenever the anthem plays before a game i always think about my dad and i think about man they want to really love this and then the next shot is the national anthem playing right before the famous michael jordan flu game and it 
scans. It's this amazing HD footage they got from the game. And the shot ends up in a close-up of Steve Kerr kind of like going through his motions while the anthem's playing. So you get these goosebumps. And then as a fan, you know it's about... Or I'm sorry, this is the, the game after the flu game. And as a fan, you know what's about to happen. That's the game where Steve Kerr hits the game-winning shot to, to win the NBA championship. And it's all because Jordan was willing to trust him, which they had established earlier in this episode. About earlier in that season, they get into a fistfight during practice because Jordan is trying to test him and he's being his asshole bully self to know, like, can I count on Steve Kerr? Is he a man or is he going to clam up? And Steve Kerr fought back, basically. And he says, I, I socked Jordan because I was sick of his shit. And this all leads up to this one amazing moment after this story that kind of bonds them together, even though they're not willing to talk about it. And the visual language of the editing of the documentary just crystallizes it so perfectly. It does all the work for you as a viewer, all leading to the end of this episode where Jordan gets double teamed on the last play of the game six of the 97 finals, where he kicks it to Steve Kerr, who hits an open... Uh, free throw jumper 15 foot jumper to win their fifth championship and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in episode seven when jordan gets emotional talking about i'm such a dick i'm such an asshole to my teammates because i want them to be ready when the time comes to get to this great moment that's going to make you immortal basically and it all just wraps around itself so beautifully that i'm really this is a this is a big reason why I'm so impressed with the documentary besides the the subject matter just being a natural fit for me to love. Yeah. But it's, it's these moves that the show makes that that's, I'm glad they decided to focus on this stuff instead of being like, Hey, why won't you, why weren't you more liberal? Sure. Sure. When you yeah, were yeah. a player, you know, like I'd much rather fo- focus on this stuff. This is why people love Jordan. This is what, this is his thing, you know, like, every person is unique and we're all we all contain multitudes or whatever but this is why jordan was so beloved and so great this is what we want from michael jordan i don't really care about his politics he is he's special more than other winners like even more than the greats and all the other people who won championships he's particularly special and he's unique in a very certain way that is only michael jordan and i love getting into the the details of why yeah and then you know, episode 10, they basically decide to not cut to commercial for 30 minutes. And it's like just this great sequence of breaking down the final game of his Bulls career. And it was the same thing. I won't ramble for too long like I just did. But the the documentary does the same thing in another way of what I just talked about. This time focusing on his relationship with Scottie Pippen and the end of his career. And it just it all works itself and wraps itself together so beautifully, I thought. Yeah, I mean, so all right, lightning round. I I agree with everything you just said. Um, for the you, yeah, like this is hugely inspirational. I think if like in terms of the Ken Burns stuff, just kind of know what you're watching and be aware of it. And exactly, yeah, be aware of the prejudice and just be like, okay, not everything in here is not. It's not a um, a uh, you know all encompassing portrait of this man. It's it's specifically choosing some things and the choice to show those things is kind of like, well, do you want to see some of the stuff that you will never get to see otherwise or not? And I think what I, what it reminded me of this year was actually the Taylor Swift documentary that was on Netflix earlier this year, only because the Taylor Swift documentary, the thing I didn't like about it was in some, well, 
the thing I didn't like about it slash was also kind of fascinated by was the idea that here is this girl or woman who has been living in this bubble her entire life that has been formed by studio executives and uh, her mother and parents and uh, her fan base and everything. And even the movie in its attempt to show the real her cannot help but like reveal some of the like bubble that they've had around themselves. So like for me watching this movie is like, yeah, Jordan's going to show you what his point of view of these events were, but by showing you that point of view, it's going to also be somewhat more revealing of his subconscious or what's important to him or his psychology. And anyone walking away with this is going to get a, probably a deeper understanding of Michael Jordan as a person. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think like, even if you just know him as like a great athlete, I think you'll walk away from this perhaps respecting him, even a begrudging respect. You might be like, yeah, I didn't agree with every, all of his methods, but like, I can't deny that the man had the skill. And I, and even the players at the end kind of, I think that's really the lesson of all of this at the end of all this, you can do it. If you can win, you can push people that much if you can win. And like, there's episodes where it's like, Hey, this guy scored 36 points on me. He had a good game. I'm going to score 36 points on him in the first half of the next game. And that's one thing to say that it's another to just go and do it and be able to, and have, and have the skill to go and be able to conquer in that way. And he actually could back it up. And so when you can back it up, like Jordan can, it kind of gives you the leeway to do whatever you want or handle it however you want. And I walked and you can like it or not like it. Like that's the other thing. You know, he had players like Kwame Brown who just completely folded, and that's unfortunate. And I definitely think, personally, as a a Jordan mega fan, I do take that as kind of a stain on Jordan that he just – especially at that that he was almost 40 at this point and this kid was 18. You know, like that's not cool, Jordan. And I think there's total room to criticize him for something like that. But at the end of the day, those Bulls teams were, were riding or dying with Jordan. And he decided this is how he had to make those teams work. And you can either stand up to him and fight back or you can fold. And that's going to decide for him who he wants in the trenches. And obviously, he had the pedigree to back that up. And just to to make it clear, just in case I wasn't, Kent Burns, uh, just to finalize this point, totally valid criticism. But like we said, it's all a story-to-story basis. And it depends on the story you want to tell. And I also think Jordan does not come off as a saint in this documentary. He no. totally doesn't. He comes off as a very, very flawed person. I agree, yeah. and Like just fundamentally a flawed person. They show a lot of footage of him just being a straight-up asshole. Like every clip we see of him and Jerry Krause, who's kind of vindicated at the end a little bit, like – they give the the documentary a little bit of time to be like, look, we had our problems with our general manager, but at the end of the day, we got to give him credit. He brought us together. We won six titles. We wouldn't have won it without him. Even still, throughout these 10 hours, there's not one moment where we see Jordan and Jerry Krause together where Jordan isn't a dickhead to him. Yeah, there's that one scene where, uh, like, that really struck me. It's on this, uh, at the half court. Um, it's like during a practice. And basically, there's all these Bulls players who are just kind of fucking around, throwing like 40 foot or whatever, like free throws, like just kind of fucking around from the half point or the half court mark. And yeah. um, at one point, Jordan throws, gets it, he swooshes it. All these other players miss it and he swooshes it. And here is like literally the most um, like wealthy man, the most popular man, the most famous man alive who like 
even then, with all these players who make like one fifteenth what he makes, he's like in their fucking faces being like, booyah, motherfuckers, I beat you. Like, he doesn't care. And it's this kind of... He was pathological. Yeah, it had nothing to do with, like, there was not plan. It's just who he is. And I think the documentary reveals that even... Like you said, uh, it might even be by accident. It might just be because you spend because he gave himself permission to sit down for these interviews and talk about his opinions. And you know, we're gonna have gifs and memes for years just of him watching iPads and yes. <laughs> just reacting to people saying things on iPads. And yeah, it's really one. If you're into, he's so animated whenever he watches them. You you feel <laughs> you like see the emotion and the energy come back to life. Like it, it literally lights up his eyes, and you see like that that anger and holding those grudges. My, yeah, my in those f- moments just from watching people talk twenty years later, it's crazy. My favorite thing, one of my favorite ones, was when the uh, the glove is talking about how he could have just played a little differently, and Michael Jordan's like. The glove was no problem. I had other things on my mind. I didn't have any problems with the fucking glove. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it, then, and then then it cuts, cuts to his to dad. Father's Day. Yeah. It's his yeah. dad. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's probably like more realistic than like he actually struggled to play against this player. You know, although that's the that's the one time where I'm kind of like bullshit, MJ. I remember that finals because the Sonics were my other favorite team of the 90s. I love that that Peyton Kemp team. And that was the only Bulls finals where I was kind of conflicted on who I was rooting for. And I remember after the Bulls went up 3 nothing and watching those next two games and Peyton had him locked up. I mean, as much as you could lock up Jordan. But he definitely he definitely stunted Jordan's play for a little bit. He couldn't contain him to win the series. But he, he held him down for a little bit. So to me, that was one where I'm like, Jordan, you're definitely not being fully honest right now. And I think he knows that. But like you were saying about being almost accidentally revealing – just one one last time to go back to that the end of that episode seven, which is if you guys don't watch this ten hours, which you need to, but you at least have to watch this episode. He breaks the fourth wall even more than you know a talking head in a documentary is breaking the fourth wall naturally. But when he's talking about that that energy and like how chaotically uh, feisty and passionate he is and how competitive he is. He even says at one point, he's like, this is why I'm doing this documentary. Like, he even stops to say, like, the reason why I am even agreeing to this entire project to let you guys see all of this footage and hear me react to it is because this is who I am. That's like exact. That's word for word what he says. He says, the only reason why I'm doing this is because this is who I am. And you understand in that moment. He has a real desire before he fades away, whether it's through death or old age or irrelevance or whatever. He has a real desire for people to try to understand him finally. Because I feel like he knows that while he was a player, and you see it in all this footage where he's like such a charming, funny dude. Like he's actually really quick-witted and he makes people laugh and he gives a lot of people the time of day. He's this weird mixture of like a total alpha male bully dickhead, but also super charismatic and nice and patient with people and really charming and flirty. But you kind of know, like, yeah, he never really opened up the way other public people do. And I feel like this was him trying to open up. And when he goes on that speech at the end of that episode that ends with him getting choked up and asking for a break, I think, I'm, I assume 
while you were watching it like I did, I was kind of like, whoa, he's getting emotional, and it's kind of strange. Like, it's kind of a weird thing to get that emotional about. Uh, I mean, I guess not. I'm, I'm getting used to post-retirement crying, Mike. Yes, but like it's not like him t- it's not like when he was talking about his dad. Right. Yeah. Like he's he's just talking about him being passionate and emotional and that's what makes him cry. And to me that's so fascinating because I don't think he was expecting to choke up right then. I think that's why he asked for a moment. And I think because we are seeing in that moment without him maybe not even intentionally doing it, like just really shedding all of his skin and like just exposing himself and saying like this is who I am for better or worse. Like, this is my life. I am this hyper-competitive dude who all I care about is being the best. I want to be the best, and I want to be remembered for that. That is what matters to me more than anything else in the entire world. And he actually was able to do it, which is fucking cool as hell. All right. Um, lightning round, last things, I guess, before we wrap up. What is your okay. What is your biggest I didn't know that or in terms of, like, Maybe you saw some footage that you just like, I had no idea this was a thing. Uh, or was there things that you always had wanted to see and, you know, were shocked that they actually had filmed? I think um, for me, like I've talked about, for me, the timeline was a big deal in terms of linking some of the like loose strands I knew about him in terms of like, oh, this is the chronological events, how they happened. And okay, so like events like him crying in the locker room on father's day like means a lot more to me now because I've seen the show and I've it's contextualized that. And then you also see other things like I was really sad when I saw all the space jam stuff only because I was like, I'd watch like an entire episode of just space jam, you know, like behind yes. the scenes. And, yes. um, but I, I, another 10 hours. Yeah. Please. Um, cause the, the space jam stuff, um, came out of that year that he returned to basketball and they lost, in the playoffs because he was just was not up to shape and physically couldn't handle it. And, um, basically they say like, I set it up at Warner brothers. I was going to shoot the movie, but I had to train. I had to be ready and be like good to go for the next season. So he was that they built this gym and the show kind of goes into, I had known all this from movie shit. Uh, I was so to, for me seeing, seeing the actual like Warner brothers gym that they built for him, I was like, oh my God, like, look at who, because there's apparently like everyone who was on the Warner Brothers lot eventually came over to play Jordan during this time. Like George Clooney was over there, like during breaks from the Peacemaker, you know, like shooting hoops with Jordan or like in between episodes of ER was like over there. So there's all this like legendary stuff of all the people from Hollywood coming over to shoot hoops with Jordan during this period. So to get a glimpse of that was so fucking cool to me. I was sad, but then I, I listened and I apparently that is all of it apparently that is every single bit of existing footage that exists from that from those games they like were not allowed oh that's heartbreaking yeah so i was like kind of i was like is there more of that why wouldn't they show more but the director i I was listening to an interview on a podcast with him he's like that is literally like every frame of what is available of that of those games because some of those games were like literally the top of nba like it was like the fucking olympic team you know like going against each other you know it's incredible games so that those were some of my like biggest i didn't know that i would have i didn't know this footage exists i didn't know the timeline so that was a big deal for me i'm curious with you as someone who and you made fun of our friend ian who's a giant jordan fan for you guys as jordan fans what was the biggest like i've never seen this before i can't believe this footage exists like i know some of the kobe footage was big for people like what was big for you uh most of the stuff 
for me that I didn't know about was earlier in his career when I was younger. And um, like the, we talked briefly about the Jesse Helms Senate race and Jordan's refusal to dip his toe into that, which was a story. I mean, they show news footage uh, basically of his reluctance back then, but I was five. So I didn't really know about that. You know, he was always very apolitical to me as a fan, as a kid. And um, to know that he kind of disappointed members of the African-American community throughout his career by kind of acting. He basically, he reminded me of OJ Simpson while he was an athlete and post uh, football career when he started doing like Hertz commercials. Yeah. And he even was, even he Obama was, is a little critical of him at that point. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, OJ was really focused on being this, this black celebrity who could uh, not scare white people. I'm, I'm not black. I'm OJ. Exactly. Um, so he reminded me a lot of that earlier on in his career, which surprised me. The biggest thing I didn't know um, was probably you mentioned the dream team. And the one thing I, the one documentary, if I could ask for anything was to get, would be to get all the footage of those practices of that U.S. Dream Team. I mean, they talk about it a lot, especially the Magic Johnson-Jordan game. But that that stuff is legendary among basketball fans. So if, if anyone could compile all that footage together and release that, that would be a dream come true. But talking about uh, Tony Kukoc, who ended up being a, an integral part of their second three-peat, I did not know until this documentary how early the Bulls were courting him and how personally Jordan and Pippen took it out on a young Tony Kukoc when they played in the 92 Olympics and he was playing for Croatia and they show footage from that first game where basically Pippen just destroys Kukoc. Did, just absolutely <laughs> destroys him. Did you have a favorite but, um, like Jordan being petty a moment? Well, you mentioned it briefly about this guy put up 37. I'm going to put up 37 in the next half. The LeBradford Smith game, the the Washington Bullets guy who was the scrub who had one good game against Jordan, and then Jordan makes up a slight. He lies and says that LeBradford Smith went up to him after the game and says, good game. He said good game in the wrong tone. (laughs) He said good game in a wrong tone, and they were on a back-to-back, and Jordan used that, and that's what he says on the flight to Washington. He put up 37 tonight. I'm going to do it in the half of the next game. And he put up 36 in the first half of that game. And then you find out later, he didn't even slight him. He made that up to give himself an edge. Like, that's how crazy Jordan was. So that moment of being petty, when you have to lie about it, but you still convince yourself, even in your own lie. To me, that's just like a new level of craziness. But yeah, that that Coach Olympic story was something that was new to me. All right, last thoughts. Let's uh, let's wrap it up. Let's move on to our next topic. Um, is there anything else? You oh wait, was the, 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 the light the lightning round? Lightning like, round. Yeah, lightning one question, huh? Well, my light. Well, I was just gonna. I, I assumed you had like multiple answers, but um. All right. Well, I, I was. I guess my other questions were like biggest goosebumps, but you kind of said the end of episode seven. Is there a different? Uh, is there a different episode? Yeah. So there's one other thing I could mention. Um. When when. Jordan's dad dies, James Jordan. That was between 93 and 94. So that was the the summer of 93. I turned eight years old. I was already a Jordan super fan. And they go into the footage of Jordan's retirement in October, which is like right before the season starts. It's not like he did it early in that offseason. He waited until a couple weeks before. 
I remember that tan suit he's wearing. Like, it gave me a complete sense memory flashback because I saw Jordan play at the Garden, I think, the season before my dad took me, and I was like seven. And we had bought tickets because my birthday was in my birthday's in August. And I asked for Bulls tickets for when they came to the Garden. And so I had them, and I was, it was like, all I was thinking about was I was going to see Jordan play the Celtics again next year. And I was so excited. And I remember early in the morning, my dad was on his way to work. I think I was on my way to school, but I'm not positive. Uh, he kind of pulls me aside. And he's like, Tom, I just want to let you know that Michael Jordan retired. So when we go to that game, he's not going to be playing. He's done playing basketball. And I broke down <laughs> sobbing so hard. And he's like, no, don't cry. Like my dad was all weird. Like he didn't really know how to handle it. And I'm like, no, I just couldn't react. It was the worst thing in the world to me. And my dad tried. I was like, I don't even like basketball anymore. This is the worst. I just couldn't handle it. And my dad said to try to soothe me. He's like, well, you know, Tom, if you want to be a professional basketball player, all those guys take ballet to make them more athletic. And you don't want to do that anyway, right? You don't want to take ballet. Yeah. He tried to like turn it into a macho thing. Like he's like, yeah, you don't want to take ballet because you know, like you're a guy, you don't take ballet. Right. So you don't want to do that anyway. And I was like, I'm confused. Yeah. yeah, Your dad never saw Billy Elliot. Clearly. He he did not. My dad, he tried, but he did not handle that well. So that memory, uh, gave me goosebumps and made me kind of emotional just because it like it brought me back to that moment as a kid and like how much i loved him and how sad it was where it felt it felt almost like a death in the family because like it wasn't like i was eight and it was like there was no social media so for him to stop playing something it was just like well my relationship to watching michael jordan is over now like it was just not no longer gonna happen you know and to me that was just like one of the saddest moments of a childhood that I don't remember a lot of. I have I have a very poor memory, <laughs> but that's one one memory I remember very distinctly, uh, and it broke my heart. So when he finally came back, it was the greatest news in the world. I was so happy. All right. Well, I I mean I feel good. Do you feel good? You ready to move on? I, I feel great. People, please watch it. It's one of the best ways you could spend your quarantine especially if you're a basketball fan you've probably already seen it but i cannot recommend this thing enough yeah it's gonna i think uh beyond this year i think it will carry on and continue to be talked about as one of the great basketball kind of documentaries and sports documentaries and portraits of an athlete and i I think it's really one of the great ones out there and anyone who's interested in sports athleticism competitive nature psychology and uh, pop culture in the 90s it's not just the story of jordan it's the story it's the story of um you know air jordans and space jam and this whole like what he became uh yeah, a, spike a lee mcdonald's yeah yeah, yeah be- and also if you're if you're just interested if you're like me and you're interested in like in greatness like people who are the best at things you know i, I always i'm always fascinated in those life stories whatever even if it's something i'm not really interested in yeah so um, for it to be about basketball as well as personal interest. But if you're interested in stuff like that, like portrait of a genius, I mean, he's a legit basketball genius. If you're interested in, in portraits of people like that and just how they live their life and the philosophies they've lived by, you should check it out because there's a lot about him and his, his mindset. Like Phil Jackson was this kind of hippie coach, but you see, especially towards the end of his career, Jordan was very much into mindfulness 
and being present. And I, like he even talks about like Zen Buddhism as a throwaway at one point. But you understand that it's actually a philosophy that he lived by. You know, like being present, staying in the moment. He has this one great quote that I highlighted where, you know, he talks about how like a lot of players, the the line between success and failure is fear and he would never let himself be ruled by fear. And he has this great quote, like people fall from picturing failure. Why would I worry about missing a shot that I haven't even taken yet? And I that line really stuck out to me. Yeah, as, yeah I remember like that. Like why, why stop yourself ahead of time, you know? Like if you don't do it, the thing you want to do, you failed at doing the thing you wanted to do by not doing it. So why worry about fucking it up if you do it? Because all that's going to make you do is not do it, and then you failed anyway. And I think that's a really good lesson to take away from Michael. Yeah, my buddy Michael. Yeah, your buddy Mike. Uh, you're you're like Mike in so many ways. Um, all right. Sometimes I dream <laughs> yeah. that he is me. Sorry. All right, Tom, let us switch subjects completely. Go from the masculine, powerful basketball into the, you know, the the, the wonderful world of Japanese anime from 1990. We're, we're all about 1990, like mid-1990s pop culture. Let's dive into um, episodes uh, 8 through 14 of Neon, Genesis, Evangelion, or Gellion for that matter. I, I believe Gellion. Yeah, ne- Neon, Genesis, Evangelion. Here are some clips. Okay, here we are. Uh, all right, so we've dived in. We're, we're, it's on Netflix. We talked about the first seven episodes and our impressions of that, Tom. Uh, here we are. We're talking about Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, my impressions, I think, as we continue this series, um, we talked about last week a, a little bit about how our first impressions on uh, anime and mangas and this kind of movement in general and... The first episodes were very much set up, obviously, about, you know, who are these characters? What's this world? We talked a lot about Pacific Rim and some of the influences of this. But now we're kind of in the meat and potatoes of the story. We're kind of in the middle of it because um, this, whole, this whole thing only runs one season long. So we're already like halfway through practically or uh, almost more than halfway through. And my main takeaways, uh, you know, we talked about this, the plot last week, but uh I was really taken by the action of these last few episodes. I was really, yeah. I was really, uh, really impressed by how they were edited, and um, I was. Uh, there's moments where I kind of had to like mentally put myself in the context of when these episodes were airing. I was like, okay, so like I can have my own shitty like cynical arms crossed perspective now, but compare this to 1995, and this is kind of my, the aim I've had. Shell and I often are watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer episodes, and I, you know, there's obviously that kind of like post serialization attitude that you can be like, ah, these like monsters of the week or whatever episodes. But I've, you know, I have found watching this that while there is still that like 
basic week by week, like we got to fight a monster type thing. As we get deeper into the show, I have started to see a little bit more, some some strong hints of the direction it's going, and I'm, I'm pretty excited by it. Uh, I think the action is very well done. I still um, think the story has been, you know, I've seen the influences in many other places, so I don't know if the story is necessarily like the most original like mind-blowing thing I've ever seen. But for me, what I've taken away has been like, wow, this really has been very well directed, uh, very well thought through. And I was kind of looking at stuff like, when did this air? That was some of my questions because I was really taken by how horny the last few episodes were. And just generally, I was like, man, when did this air in Japan? Like, when did Japanese children get to see this? So, like, that, those were some of my questions. I was really... Well, this, uh, this, I don't think this was a show for children. It's like a PG-13 show. And so I checked, and it aired on Wednesdays at 6.30. Well, it's it's TVMA on Netflix. Yeah, there's... there's I mean, like, not, I, I would say, like, nudity, but it's, like, under boob with no nipple. They're very, like, careful to not ever, like illustrate a nipple but they'll illustrate the entire boob that type of thing and i was like the last stretch of episodes i was like man this is really horny and i was like when is this like when was this on tv like i i can see the dates but i like went digging a little bit more it aired at 6 30 p.m on wednesdays in japan uh, one episode a week it aired after the ninja turtles um so uh (laughs) yeah and um that on top of the fact that like most of the characters are 14 according to um the dialogue, I was like, man, this is a fucking horny show. That was some of my, you know, I have other talk, things to talk about, but that was my big takeaway from these last stretch of episodes. I was like, man, they're horny. Yeah, it's definitely a horny show. I was reading this really, this series of essays, and um, they were talking about, because, you know, you and I, I I'm, I'm bummed. We mentioned Miyazaki. I'm, I'm mad that we forgot to, or that at least I forgot to bring up Satoshi Khan last week when talking about anime because he's a he was a brilliant anime filmmaker who unfortunately passed away way before his time but he left a legacy of a handful of really great movies like perfect blue and tokyo godfathers yeah um so check him out guys millennium actress uh paprika is amazing anyway um this is a very horny show and i was reading a little bit about anime especially the anime studios at this time in the 80s and 90s and this essayist, who seems to know a lot more about anime than you or I, was basically saying, like, horniness in anime television at this time was the thing. Like, it was just everywhere. Especially kind of, like, sexist, um, really, like, uh, indecent towards younger girls. Like, that that stereotype about you know, the seedier sides of Japanese culture you can kind of get sometimes, like the schoolgirl fetish and stuff like that. Like, that that was a really big part of anime television in general. And what this guy says, uh, while he doesn't say that Neon is exempt from this, he says that the show, this show at least tries to use it in the context of the characters. Like, a lot of the horniness, it, it doesn't come from, like, adults just leering at kids. Yeah, it's a lot from the perspective of like the fourteen-year-old boy, like reaching puberty and dealing with his confusing emotions about being horny around girls and not really knowing what to do with it. It's like stuff like that. So at least it works kind of within the characters in the world, but 
it doesn't mean that the show is not horny as shit. It definitely is. Yeah, I guess that was one of the bigger shockers of these mid episodes. Like, there's so many episodes of uh, or shots of girls getting changed and being like, "Hey, don't look at me," or like they're crawling through vents and it's like, "Hey, don't look up my skirt." Or you know, there's, uh, "Hey, you have to do this new simulation, but you have to do it naked," and the girls are embarrassed about being naked. There's so much stuff about being naked, about being horny, and that was kind of like my. You know, not the biggest takeaway, but that was like one of the first things I noticed. I was like, man, you really can't do this with American television. Like, this is not Saturday morning television. And that's really why I went digging. I was like, what time did this air? Like, this is not a 10 a.m. show, you know, for kids. Like, I was, oh, hell yeah. And that's sort of why I was like really curious. I was like, was this like a primetime show? What was this? And I guess it was, like I said, 6 30 p.m. after the Ninja Turtles on Wednesdays for like 25 plus weeks and uh you know it's an interesting cultural you know digression but you know because 14 year olds are horny i was certainly horny at 14 but it was just like oh man like you're looking at these shows and like i said you're seeing like young breasts and stuff i was like man this is shocking but uh yeah it's it's definitely a a bit of a culture shock you mentioned that one that one episode where so um just to talk about the plot very briefly, at least where we are now, we talked about it last week, but these young kids are the only people who can control these Ava machines, which are these giant robots that are basically the last line of defense against these these giant monster alien creatures called angels who are attacking one at a time uh, against Earth 15 years after what they're calling the second impact, which the world has been told, uh, which... Uh, they have been telling children was the result of a meteor that landed in Antarctica and basically created a nuclear holocaust, which led to nuclear war. But what really seems to have happened was it had something to do with one of these aliens and they feel like they're ramping up their attacks again and like a third impact is maybe on the way. So that's where we are now. Um, The three teenagers are this boy Shinji and these two girls, Ray and uh, Asuka. Asuka. Yeah, Asuka. Uh, Asuka. Yeah. Who's this like this this very cocky redheaded girl from Germany, and all of the horniness seems to be Shinji not deciding who he's more attracted to, but having no idea how to handle it. And there's this one episode in particular where I thought the nudity was actually really interesting. It's what you talked about. So they're doing these new uh, tests with the machines because for whatever reason, the reason why these three kids can pilot these giant Ava machines is because uh, the Avas kind of react or they like kind of link up organically with their human drivers, their human pilots. And for whatever reason, they respond to these younger kids. So these three are the pilots because no one else can be. Like they were, it was almost like they're the chosen ones, right? So they're they're running these new tests, and they say that the the three kids all have to be naked inside their machines while they run these new diagnostics and figure out these like meter readings and stuff, which are all, you know, gibberish that we're not necessarily supposed to understand literally but just understand in terms of like how competent and capable they are as pilots in these machines and it that started to create this angle that i actually really enjoyed of almost like this weird body horror like david cronenberg tetsuo the iron man type stuff of linking man and machinery which is big in japan pop culture as well as other parts of culture around the world like specifically david cronenberg and his fascination with body horror and stuff like crash and the brood 
but uh, you combine that plot uh, with Ray's character, who's basically the first child, the first of these Ava pilots, this very muted, depressed girl who, throughout the course of the show, we have not really come to understand her much at all, other than she keeps to herself. She's not social at all. She lives alone. Uh, she has a lot of loyalty to the main guy behind this nerve program, which runs the Ava machines. And whereas Shinji, the boy, has a lot of doubt and fears about being a pilot and worrying about dying doing it, she just seems like an object being used as a pilot. Like, yes, this is my purpose. I have no other purpose in life. But she doesn't seem to have memory. She doesn't seem to have personality. And the last couple episodes we watched uh, for this chunk, 8 through 14, we're starting to get this sense. I know you wanted to talk about episode 14 in particular, we're starting to get this sense that something is fucking weird with Ray, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Is that your understanding too? So that episode where they have to get naked and work inside the machines, it kind of worked, it kind of like prepared me a little bit for what seems to be a blossoming plot angle with Ray. And like, is she even human? Is she like part machine? Like what's going on with her? Because I like it when they kind of meld the man and the machine and part of it that we're seeing in the show another uh larger story angle that we've come to learn about what happened with the second impact uh shinji's father the guy ray is very loyal to who's running project nerve or as they say in the dub nerve they don't call it nerve but they say nerve um he is working with these like sinister government heads, this shadow organization, and they're working on something called what is it? It's like the human, uh, the human instrumentality project. Yeah, that he has been right. given. Yeah. He, he has been given a piece of this body, which he believes is the first man. He thinks it's like part of Adam. They call it Adam, yeah. And so something's going on where they have something in mind that we don't know about. But what we do know is that the angel's DNA is 99% matched with human DNA. So they're trying, they don't even know if this angel, these alien attackers are alien or if they're from Earth. Like, are they the original humans from Earth and they're coming back to reclaim their planet? There's a point in one episode where I believe it was Shinji questions that basically saying like, like why do we call them angels why do the yeah, angels are supposed to be messengers of god why are we fighting them is there maybe we're the bad guys basically and we're harming them from like their rightful place here so there are all these weird hints of like something really crazy and weird that is going to happen but we haven't reached that point yet but it's it's all very interesting for me and the monster of the week kind of plot line to keep each episode moving like you said the action is really great and uh that's enough to sustain me episode to episode as we're dropping hints i think also just knowing that it's going to end after 26 episodes yeah um, that, that is really helping to keep me super engaged because i know like we only got a dozen left and everybody loves this show and i'm very intrigued i like what i've seen so far and all the hints that they're dropping has intrigued me so I, i'm just going to trust that it's going to lead me somewhere great because i know time's running out and everybody loves it yeah i mean 
I'll be, I mean, to be completely honest, I'm not like A plus, this is a masterpiece. I'm just like, yeah, this is very interesting and good. And I, I don't know that I've jumped over the moon. For me, I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm analyzing it more than I'm enjoying it in a way. Like, but I, I did find myself a bit more immersed in these recent episodes than I did at least in the first seven. And, um, you know, I would say that largely the last seven have centered around the training sequences um, that are kind of mixed in with angel battles. And I, I think the main development that we learn as an audience and that they learn as characters is that the angels involve, evolve with their environments. So, you know, there's an episode where they go down to like high pressure underwater um, to like find an egg and they find a angel that has kind of evolved in that high pressure environment and can open its mouth and kind of do all this damage. There's another one that uh, is involved with a tech that kind of like adapts itself to the computer. So they kind of see that these angels are adapting themselves to their various environments. And it's like, well, how do we challenge that? Like these, they're evolving so fast that we have to like come up with new ways to counter them. And I, you know, for me, I thought that was pretty interesting on top of the fact that episode 14 is the reason that was more the most interesting to me, even though the first half of it, I think really struck me because the first half was entirely just summarizing what had happened already. Like it was just like, yeah, let's just show you all the different, you know, battles and show you, remind you of what has happened so far. And you could theoretically start the show at episode 14. If you didn't want to watch the first 13. Yeah. If you were just like, well, let me just see the battles that have happened in the previous episodes and see, uh, where the monsters are. Yeah, you could just watch episode 14. You're caught up. And it was interesting to watch that. But then the second half of episode 14 has become much more about like the psychological impact of what's, what it's like being in those Avas and, you know, which person can operate each, uh, whatever you want to call them, mecha, machine, Ava. You know, w- watching that stuff was pretty interesting. And, you know, there was some visual stuff that you're just like, oh, yeah, like, when I compare this to fucking, I don't know, X-Men on Fox or Gargoyles or whatever else was on X was on Fox at, in 1995 when we were watching that, I'm like, oh yeah, this is clearly so much more mature, clearly in terms of like going into darker material. I think that's what I've tried to keep in mind while I was watching these new episodes. Like, oh yeah, like trying to remind myself what cartoons I was watching in 1995 and think about this coming out at that time more than this show compared to what it, other shows have followed it because I think, you know, if you're looking at it now, you're like, yeah, I've seen a lot of things like this so far. I've seen a number of giant robots fighting monsters in cities. I I, I don't know that that part of the show is necessarily the most original. And if you're into that kind of thing, I think you'll enjoy the show. But otherwise I do think that there is other elements of the show that I've been able to grasp onto. Some of them being the more psychological visual aspects of the show especially as an animation fan and watching the kind of different ways they've been animated scenes that I just, you would never see in an, in an American animation. And yeah, totally. Yeah. So like, you'll see like some of the rooms that are just like, you'll see four people that are like weirdly lit by a room and that's like half the scene. And you're like, Oh yeah, I'm just looking at the still image and listening to dialogue, but the still image is so powerful that, you know, that's okay. Whereas American cartoons, you know, you'd never see that. And so that, those are the kind of things I've held on to, I think, in this middle run of episodes was both kind of seeing the way the angels themselves have evolved and the kind of horniness of it and just seeing how distinct the show is from American shows. That's the stuff that I think has stood out to me more than maybe just being like, this is the greatest show ever. I don't know that I've had that reaction, but I've definitely been fascinated by it. 
Well, yeah, I, I hope you're not going into this hoping that or expecting it to be the greatest show ever. I've, I think I've really wanted a to lot watch of people Cowboys consider Bebop. it the greatest. Well, I, I know a lot of people consider it the greatest anime show ever. You know, yeah, but greatest show ever. I don't know. I don't know how pe- anime fans rate this versus just shows in general. You said that episode fourteen, it it starts to get a little more psychological and deal with like the trauma of it, and that's something that I I think I've been holding on to throughout the the entire run of the show so far. I think it deals with the especially with Shinji, the boy who's the main character. It deals with him basically suffering from PTSD uh, the entire show so far. Like I mentioned last week, I think it was episode four, which is him just basically running away, you know, instead of being like the chosen one who was born to fight and, and rises to the call. After his first major battle, he's severely wounded. He almost dies and he's like horrified from it and he he just spends a whole episode on a train running away but he realizes he, he really has nowhere to go um and it, the show slowly develops the relationships with his basically his caretaker uh misato the woman that he lives with um where they they've start to, sh- to form a much stronger bond as we've gone deeper into the shows so the point where she's basically like an older sister for him there's even one point where you know, he's kind of frustrated with her. All of his school friends are so in love with her. And she's this older, hot, like 20-something probably. And uh, they keep talking about how great she is. And she, he's so annoyed. Like, you have no idea. She's such a slob. She's so gross at home. She drinks beer in the morning. She leaves her bra panties out everywhere. And they finally, like, try to get it through his head. They're like, dude, you're getting to see the real woman. Like, not just this hot piece of ass that we're fawning over. But you're actually seeing her for who she is and she wouldn't show you that unless she cared about you you know and like was okay with you seeing that and this kind of strikes Shinju is like or Shinji is like oh I kind of maybe I have like a, a big sister finally and it's this really sweet moment where once he kind of has that hammered into his head by his friends their relationship really takes off and there's a lot more trust there and a lot of seeds of them just kind of kind of having one-on-one conversations and dealing with their emotions. Like later on in the show, one of the more recent episodes we watched, um, Misato gets promoted to a uh, general rank. She gets an extra star on her chest and he, Shinji is talking to her about it. And you can tell she's not like super pumped. Yeah. And you're kind of wondering why, because she's so militarily oriented. Like her whole mission is this mission of working for Nerve and fighting the angels and then you finally see, for the first time, we finally get to go back 15 years and see a little bit of the second impact, this big, momentous uh, occasion in our history that's wiped out half the human race. And we see Misato as this little girl, and it's this awesome opening of one of the episodes. It's like episode 11 or 12. Yeah, I thought it was great. Where we start on the moon. And we're looking down at Earth, and all is quiet. And then suddenly, like just a light, that was a, switches on. That had to be a 2001 reference, right? That that was my thought. Oh, it, yeah. it reminded me exactly like 2001. Yeah. And then suddenly we we cut down to Earth, and suddenly all like everything is dark and brown, and everything's on fire. And Misato's this little girl, and she gets put into a capsule by this guy who's like his hands are melting, and you realize it's his her dad. And she's this little girl has no awareness of what's going on, but the apocalypse is happening. Like, that's what's happening. And the dad knows he's about to die, and he just tries to save her. 
puts her in this capsule, sends her down a river or something, and then he just like lays down and dies. And she wakes up later. She survived this Holocaust. And that clues you into her. She's not that happy about the promotion because she hasn't finished her mission. She she just wants to kill all these fucking angels who took her dad away from her and ruined her life, you know? So it's like these little, they're really good at vi- the visual storytelling of it, of really trusting the the viewer to understand what's going on with all of these characters without having to explain everything through dialogue. And I really like that the show trusts us to follow along because it's a pretty complex show. I mean, obviously it's very Monster of the Week, but in terms of like the plotting of the secret government shadow people, the actual aliens and what actually happened 15 years ago, what they're worried about happening now and why the robots only work with these young kids. Like there's a lot of confusion and shit that they don't spell out for you. But I, I like that. I like that they keep me wondering because I think the story, the actual like aesthetic of the show and the, the confidence that these the storytellers have in the show, even if I don't understand all of it as it's happening, I feel their confidence, and that's enough to like just keep me rolling, you know? Yeah, I um, I I think it's like he said. I I think I've been more interested as I've watched. I think I've been like, I really would like to revisit Akira and Ghost in the Shell and Cowboy. I would like to watch Cowboy Bebop. So. You know, it's been, yeah, it's kind of been one of those things of like, man, this is, yeah, this is a whole world that I don't know. This whole like subculture, you know, within pop culture that I, you know, and as someone who feels like I have a good handle on most aspects of pop culture or at least have an idea of what's going on, it's really encouraged me to kind of been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to think like anime is not for me, but I've been watching this and seeing some of the intelligence and some of the design and I can, you know, I'm smart enough to know where they're cutting corners, but I'm also smart enough to know like where they're being creative about how they cut those corners and how they're using that to their advantage. And, uh, I think it's great. And so far I've been, uh, I would say these middle episodes have grabbed me almost more than the first seven. And I was like by episode four, same with me. Yeah. By, by episode 14, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm much more willing to kind of keep going on this journey than I think I was by episode seven. Good. I was going to ask you that um, as we wrapped up the segment, if you were more or lesser about the same. I'm glad you're more because I am too. I'm, I'm kind of tempted to just dive right back in. Um, a couple things I wanted to, to add, you know, I talked about kind of like the man machine melding going on. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a, a little bit more of that that uh, I, I didn't mention yet. Like uh, there are these computers called the, the Magi's which are like these three computers, which are almost like um, they kind of reminded me of uh, I'm blanking on the, the names of the, the girls in minority report, the precogs. Precogs. Yeah. They're not, they're not exactly precogs, but they kind of remind me of that they're the, just these three supercomputers that basically uh, evaluate um, all of the data they have and then make certain decisions. And there are three of them because they can never end in a tie majority rules. And that kind of influences the decisions of nerve and what they want to do moving forward. So they've put like all their trust in this technology, this machinery, but we've come to find out that these machines were built by this brilliant scientist, this woman and three different aspects of her personality were put into each of these supercomputers, each of the, each of these magis. 
or Magi's, I think they pronounce it, because there's one episode where it's one of my favorite episodes, actually, in terms of a monster of the week, where one of the angels is actually like, uh, they're it's like subatomic, and they, uh, this one angel monster works as a virus and infiltrates one of the the Magi computers and takes it over, and then it's working towards the second one to try to get a majority decision to get the Magi's to self destruct. And basically ruin all of Nerve HQ. And so they're able to pause it for a second. And this uh, the scientist who works there, I forget her name. But she's like Mis- Misatu's biggest female friend, that blonde lady. You know who I'm talking about, right? The yes, yes. The Sorry, yeah. I was on mute. Um, yes, yes, I do know. No problem. Okay, yeah. So she, she pauses the virus and they like have two hours to figure out how they're going to defeat this thing. And she opens up the one Magi who hasn't been infected yet by the virus. And you see that there's an actual brain in there. So it's, again, this melding of machinery and humanity. And you come to find out that each machine carries a part of her mother's personality, who is part scientist, part mom, and part woman. woman. So there's, like parts aspects of each computer that is lovely and warm and comforting another aspect that's just brilliant and completely calculating and another aspect that is maybe very demanding and irrational and confident brash you know so it's like it's again this meld of machinery and humanity which isn't necessarily dictating the story but it's just working as all these extra layers of headiness to kind of deal with on a philosophical level that i'm really enjoying the other aspect that I'm really enjoying is I don't know if you've noticed a lot of like the religious imagery that's going on in this show, but there's a lot of yeah yeah religious... there's been a lot of I, I've noticed the crucifixes I've noticed a lot of that yeah like obviously Masato has the the crucifix crucifix necklace which seems to be like her prized possession uh, the first angel who dies who gets killed the first one that Shinji defeats explodes in this massive light the the light creates an exact replica of a crucifix even like the exact angle of where the cross bar on the crucifix would be and then there are a lot of questions throughout the episode about trusting your faith in something versus the science of it like this faith versus science reasoning is a constant battle that's going on between a lot of the characters like Masato the one who carries the crucifix necklace there's another episode where this other uh, governmental agency has created an Ava type machine that could basically run on autopilot. It doesn't need the human counterpart. And Masato goes to this conference to speak out against it and saying, you need the humans in there as a failsafe, as a backup, because you cannot trust the machine on its own. It could go berserk. Something bad could happen. They dismiss her in a very sexist way, but in a very self-aware sexist way of dismissing this woman. Of course, the machine goes wrong and she's left to fix the problem and, you know, stop it from self-destructing and basically blowing up a city block or something like that. So there's a lot of these, uh, this wrestling with faith and, you know, even the Judeo-Christian imagery of calling these enemies angels, but are they really enemies? And what does that mean? Like who's actually good and who's bad in this, in this world? So there's a lot of this like philosophical playfulness in the show that I really enjoy. Yeah, I do too. Uh, like for me, the weirder it gets, the better. I'm kind of like, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, like you know, as much as I enjoy, like I like I said, the action is actually very well edited. I was surprised. I was kind of looking at it again, trying to keep that 
1995 aesthetic in and be like, okay, what did I expect of cartoons in 1995? And in that respect, the film is, or the, the show is way ahead of its time. It was very engaging. I, I look forward to more episodes. I, um, I mean, I mean, I'm curious where this, this show is headed. I, I definitely, uh, agree that there is a psychological aspect to the show that is very engaging compared, especially compared to some of the more basic, like just monster of the week stuff, which I think can appear at first, like, Oh, this is just an action scene that you guys are throwing in. But I think the show has been very good about let's find a psychological underpinning to all of this. And what does this reveal about our characters? And, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting time. Like I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say like I I have had an urge to kind of like let's explore let's explore Cowboy Bebop. Let's like let me go check out the other ones. Like that might be Dude, I'm down. I got the Blu-ray of Cowboy Bebop. We can watch it. All right, let's do it. Um Yeah, the uh the uh one of my favorite action episodes is like the synchronized swimming episode. Yeah. Where where Shinji and Asaka have to basically mimic each other's movements and work in perfect harmony to defeat one of the angels. And it's like set to classical music. It's it's like a synchronized swimming dance. It's really great. But, you know, most of the action usually deals with the fallout and it's not like glamorized action like a lot of these shows would be. You know, a lot of it deals with like the ugliness of the violence and like the sacrifice that these kids have to deal with. Because all th- the one constant of these three kids pilots they are all dealing with major trauma none of them have parents except for shinji who has this dad who basically hates him and is using him as a pawn um we don't really know what asaka's deal is but we know that her parents aren't in the picture ray we know her parents are dead yeah they're all they're all dealing with these these horrible childhoods and the violence really affects them all in very different ways where ray has become this closed-in robot and Shinji is this guy who's very openly struggling with it. And Asako, Asaka, I keep forgetting her name, sorry. Asuka. Asuka, Asuka. yeah, yeah. Is, is very, like, brash and confident, but you you come to find out after a couple episodes that a lot of that, you know, it's just... Uh, it's being used for comic it's, it's effect. It's this. Yeah, yeah. It's being, but it's also an act. She's, she's very troubled underneath. Yeah, it's clearly, like, every time she's like, hey, I'm the best, and then someone's like, you're not the best. She's like, what are you... Oh, my God. You know, it's clearly yeah. an insecure thing of her trying to... You know, this, there's uh, basically this three main characters. There's the, there's the super arrogant, high on her pedestal one. There's the quiet, you know, she doesn't say a word, but she's quietly a badass. And then there's the main guy who is just basically like, I'm just going to quietly go about my day and get this job done. And he's going to eventually be the hero. So you have those three kind of personality types conflicting with each other at all times. Because one of my... Uh- uh, a couple of my favorite moments with Asuka, really, really quickly. Um, someone pointed this out to me. I didn't pick it up right away, but she she has to move in on that synchronized swimming episode. She has to move in with Shinji and Masato, who's the older woman who kind of is like their caretaker. And you see in one moment, she's uh, put on one of Masato's shirts and it's like clearly too big for her and hangs loosely. Um, but she just decides to wear it for like the rest of the day. And then you see them later in a hot springs and they're hanging out. And she asked Masato, like, so I guess you know about my background, huh? And that's when you kind of realize there's this trauma that hasn't really been spoken of yet with Asuka's character. But it's like the, those really little visual clues that tell you like, oh, she's looking up to Masato as like a big sister or mother figure because she doesn't have one. So as cocky as she wants to get, she's still this little girl who's going to wear her big sister's shirt 
and then walk into Shinji's room at night, sleepwalking, and just start like quietly crying in her sleep, calling out for her mom, you know? Like these really great little moments about her that really evolve the character. Obviously, she's very funny. I know she's apparently a fan favorite because of her personality, but um, they, they make sure to add those little details in there to give them a lot more depth and make it a lot more interesting. All right. Well, we're going to keep watching uh, the next few episodes. We're going to finish the show and we're going to, I guess, we'll check in on each other next week and see what we think of episodes, what, 15 through 22? Is that what we're doing? Or are we doing all? I think 15 through 21. And then after that, we will have 22 through 26. We'll end the show. And then uh, we can add the movie into that episode, the end of Evangelion movie, or save that for the following episode. All right. Well, yeah, I, I look forward to checking those out. It's been an it's been a really interesting experience, and I, I thank you for pushing me to do it because I, I it's one of those things I think I would have never done otherwise. So cool. Uh, cool. So I pushed you to finish the last dance and actually watch nine and ten, and you you're pushing me to watch. Japanese animation. So we're, you know, yeah. that's the that's the goal of this podcast. Yeah. Broaden our horizons. All right. All right. It's the uh it's that time of the show I think where we should wrap things up. We're going over a little we're, we're well over 2 hours at this point. Yeah. And let's wrap things up. Um is there anything you would like to recommend to the to the listeners? Would you like to tell them, "Hey, check this out. Go go take a peek. What what is it? What's going on with you these days?" Uh, no, that's basically what I've been focused on, but I will, I'll pass this segment over to you because I know you, you didn't mention it yet. Uh, Lynn Shelton passed away. Yeah. Lynn Shelton passed away and she is a independent filmmaker. And for those of you in the podcast realm, WTF by Mark Marin is, um, one of the, I would, what do you want to say? Flagship podcast of podcasts. Yeah, yeah, it's for sure. If you're into podcasts, you probably know about WTF. It's one of those original podcasts that sort of helped define the genre, whatever it is, the the place that we're in. And Mark Marin, who has been a comedian, a stand-up comedian, and a um, actor and producer and writer and everything else, uh, he did an episode recently about uh, his partner Lynn Sheldon, who died this week. And Lynn Shelton was an amazing, um, thoroughly independent voice who created, um, you know, independent films and kind of did the thing that I think a lot of us try to do in terms of, you know, she went and worked on TV shows and would use her clout and money on from those TV shows to go and do independent films that were done her way. And for people like Tom and I, I think... Her law, you know, for one thing, she died at 54 and she died very suddenly. She died, uh, it was not, not a long time coming. It was a blood law or it was a blood disease that no one had diagnosed and it was very sudden and surprising. So I think, um, it, it really took the wind out of a lot of us. And especially for me personally, only because, uh, as Tom knows, I tend to watch directors week to week. I tend to choose a director every week or two and try and dive hardcore into their films and i had happened to have chosen lynn shelton's filmography um yeah. for a number of reasons i hump day was the big reason it was because I, i'm writing a romantic comedy that deals a lot with sec uh, sexual awkwardness and that was one of the big titles uh, in when we were coming of age that i remembered and i was like oh i want to i really want to revisit that and there's any number of there's like five titles by her that i don't think i've seen 
and I'd seen some of her major ones. So I was like, okay, over this next week, I'm going to go, I'm going to revisit all of her titles because they're really quick, like 80 minute quick watches. And I was like, sure, that'll be an easy like thing to get through. And that sounds like a easy way to get through my week. So I had literally spent the entire week reading Lynn Shelton interviews and thinking about Lynn Shelton and watching her entire filmography. So when she died the next day, for me, I know I'm just a fan. It was just like kind of shocking, you know, someone you've thought about for even just a few days. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was just, it was, wow. Like I, you know, was very surprised by it. I was shocked. And it was one of those things of I felt more, I felt deeply about it than I think I would have otherwise only because I had just revisited her entire f- filmography. I had literally just been thinking about her and thinking about her. Yeah, you had been texting me for 10 days straight, basically a new movie or something about her. Um, I mean, she was very prolific still. Like she, Little Fires Everywhere is that miniseries on Hulu that she directed, you know, several of those episodes. She was still very, very active. And like you said, she was she had just been giving interviews like the week before she died healthy with with Mark Marin. Yeah, I had um I'm a member of the independent film uh, uh group out here in IFP out here in California and they had literally like set up that week a like webcam interview with her and um so another director because like she was so active and just trying to tell young people like, Hey, it's really easy to make a, not really easy, but you know, you can make a film if you want to make a film. And she was really encouraging of young and independent filmmakers. And even if I personally did not love every single one of her films, or we kind of, I think tend to tease filmmakers like that. It'd be like, Oh, you just made little character dramas about small little problems being overcome. I think, you know, it's easy for people like me and you, to kind of slight that in a way and kind of be like, yeah, you know, like they weren't trying for much or, and I think there's a lot of bad versions of that, but she was one of the good versions of that. Yeah, for sure. And so I think seeing someone like her go was really hard. And especially because it was so surprising, especially as a fan of Mark Marin, they were a couple and they were being very creatively uh, communicative communicative with each other and i think it was also this kind of like wow i feel terrible for mark i don't even know mark but i feel terrible i bet he's doing terrible right now and so all that was a really hard week for those of us who are film fans and i just wanted to read this quote from her because it's it's meant a lot to me the last couple weeks and um she said it i had read this quote before she died and then people shared it uh, the week that she died. And it meant a lot to me as an independent filmmaker. And I guess I just wanted to highlight it really quick before we left. Uh, she, she said, I self-generated my own work and I never went around asking permission to make it. The main reason women make inroads in independent film is that no one has to say, I pick you. It's not pounding on anyone's door. It's not making my own way. You can buy a camera for $1,500. It's insane how easy it is to make a movie. You can make mistakes and throw it under the rug and keep going. You're not dependent on other people allowing you to do it. And I think that's a, you know, it's so important. It's so hard to make a movie. But yeah, if you really, if it matters to you, you will raise the funds. You will go make it. And go look at films like hers. They, you know, they're instruction manuals on how to make small personal stories. And uh, yeah, R.I.P. You know, rest in peace. She's an incredible voice. It's very sorry. I'm very sorry that we lost her this early. It's one of those things of you take her for granted and then she's gone and you realize like what a loss you had. Absolutely. Well said. 
All right. And on that note, also, I wanted to say RIP really quick to Fred Willard. Um, yes. Uh, just a comedic genius. Uh, anyone who doesn't know his face I, or know his name, I guarantee if you look him up, you're like, oh, that guy who cracked me up that one time. Um, he's in a fucking million movies. He's incredible. RIP, you know, it's, you know, it happens every year. There's always deaths. And it's, it's a chance for people like us to reckon with who are these people that are contributing to our lives who have made us laugh, who have made us think, who have made us feel things. And, you know, like, let's show respect when it's due. And I just wanted to take a moment to show respect to these two. Absolutely. And um, I will jump on that going back to the last dance. Uh, Phil, you'll remember him as the coach of the Utah Jazz when they only scored 54 points in that one finals game. And he's at the podium saying, is that really the final score? Do you remember that moment? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do, actually. At the, the end of the last dance. That guy, Jerry Sloan, just passed away. Um, great, great coach of the Utah Jazz for many, many years. 25, 27 years, something like that. But he truly seemed like one of the good guys in basketball. Uh, he was a mainstay basically my entire life as a basketball fan. And uh, he just passed away this week as well. So rest in peace, Jerry Sloan. Yeah, rest in peace, Jerry Sloan. Rest in peace, Lynn Sheldon. Rest in peace, Fred Willard. It's a hard week. Um, but let's just say, uh, you know, like you said, let's go watch those basketball games. Let's go watch those movies. Uh, let's go watch those performances. They're going to live forever. And that is the beauty of the internet and of streaming and of available video and whatever else like we have those things they are locked down hopefully forever and we can kind of keep cherish oh yeah we can keep cherishing them and keep going forward and it's a hard time for independent film and to see someone like lynn shelton go who is by all accounts one of the nicest human beings and collaborative and open with actors those are the type of people that you want to work with and uh yeah like it was a sad to see her go especially like i said after i'd spent literally a week thinking very hard about her um, so yeah, so that was kind of, I really want to recommend just go watch any of her films. Uh, the, uh, her first film is available on prime. I, I downloaded several of her films from, uh, prime. I watched hump day. I, I'm trying to think of where I'll, I kind of had to spread it out, but basically I, people can find it. Yeah. Her films are available. Please pay the $4. We talked earlier in this episode about like, it, just be willing to pay three or $4 to watch these films just cause it's not on Netflix doesn't mean you can't watch it for a very cheap price and you know support people like that support independent filmmakers support women filmmakers yeah, go watch Humpty. Yeah. Humpty's is a good movie yeah Humpty's is a good movie you know the all of her movies are worthwhile and even if they're like small you might be like oh that's a sweet little movie but go watch it you know like go support these people it's it's worth it agreed all right. All right. You you have anything else to add? I think we've we talked a lot about No, for God's sakes, we're done. We're done. All right. Two All right. Let's let's wrap it up. I will wrap All right. Um that is this week. The only thing I will add is that Carly Rae Jepsen released an album this week and I'm very excited. That is important. I'm glad you brought That's that important. up. important. Dedicated side B, everybody. De- Check it dedicated out. side B. That's all I'll add. Maybe I'll talk more about it next week. But that is the show. I'm down. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to it as well. But let's talk about it next all right. week because I, I, I think it's worth discussing. Yeah. All right. That's the show this week. Uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show uh, on iTunes and leave your reviews on YouTube. Every one of those helps us out incredibly. Thank you, Zach Pitts, for the theme music. Thank you, everyone leave your comments let us know what you think check us out on youtube uh tom you can find him at bendy tom bendy at uh instagram you can find me at phil underscore Weedenheft on twitter look for us there tom i'll see you next week buddy all right see you buddy love everybody love yourselves touch yourselves touch each other 
but not right now. No, I'm going to do it right now. Okay. All right. Bye.